This is the Two-Tone Uncensored Podcast. Hosts Matt McCrone, Brian Moreland, and Glenn Lotzenheiser talk everything Tennessee Titans. This show is made for the fans of Bleed Two-Tone Blue. Hey, this is Kevin Dyson, former Tennessee Titan, and you're listening to Two-Tone Uncensored. This is Two-Tone Uncensored. I am your host, Ryan Moreland, along with me on this journey, as always. Clemson's number one homer, Matt Necrone. How you doing, Matt? I'm the face that runs the place. <laughs> and Glenn, the Tennessee Titans unofficial good luck charm, Lotzenheiser. How you doing, Glenn? I'm uh, still warming up. My second ball has actually come out now. It's no longer stuck up inside of me. Oh, man. (laughs) Back with the show. You don't have to. (laughs) I just felt like throwing that out there just for the sake of doing it. I'm I'm still warming up, but it was an incredible game, and I am perfectly willing to attend as many games as the Titan fans want to send me to. For everybody who doesn't know, uh, Glenn was in attendance for the Kansas City game. And before we get into the mailbag, I kind of wanted to ask you, Glenn, a little bit about of that that experience going there, and really the ending there. The you know the final a couple seconds, they missed the field goal. Uh, obviously, the timeout was called, and then they have a chance to hit it. Before we get into the mailbag, I wanted to ask you, what was that like being in the stands and Kansas City for that? Well, I think everybody should just go look at the video I posted on our uh, Facebook page. I think that kind of said it all, really. Uh, the, the the first kick he, he hit it and we were all kind of like it's gonna be short but we had, you know already I'd already seen the officials waving it off and the whistles blowing uh, when he missed the Kansas City fans exploded and I just kept telling them to calm on down because you know uh, Andy Reid had just cost them the game and I was explaining to my wife what you know why we lost um, or why they had just now lost because they, they did the perfect thing they they tried to ice the kicker and cold conditions you don't do that in adverse conditions in adverse conditions you're showing the kicker what he needs to do to be able to make that field goal and he did and it set up perfectly to you know just so suck up just a little bit harder I, i've got this uh field goal so as soon as he missed the first one and they had you know they'd called the timeout i knew we'd won once that kick went through there i was doing the there are no flags i was looking around the field before i reacted like no flags, no flags. Okay, we won. Hell yes! And then you're know, then screaming into the camera and everything else. You can see all that on our Facebook page there. Yeah, and it was a great video that you took there. Anybody who hasn't seen it, I would definitely check it out on uh, Two Tone Uncensored on Facebook. Uh, but let's jump right into the mailbag. We have uh, four questions here in the mailbag today. First one from good friend of the show, Brandon Williams. If Malarkey didn't go for two. Would we have won that game? Before you guys answer, this is Brandon's theory. The Chiefs wouldn't have been conservative. Obviously, if they get the ball back, they're trying to move down the field for a game-winning field goal. So they wouldn't have been conservative with the run, trying to run the timeout. They would have tried to punch the ball down the field, waste the time down, and then kick a field goal. So, with that being said, do you think we would have won if Malarkey did not decide to go for two? 
if he had gotten the two, I think we would have still won. If he had decided not to go for two and just tie it up, it's really 50-50. Uh, the Chiefs fans around me were telling me that Andy Reid was going to cost him this game just because of his poor time clock management. Uh, they, they said that he would have ended up screwing that up there or he would have continued running Spencer Ware instead of Tyreek Hill. I, I really don't understand why Hill didn't have more touches. The, the guy is so explosive and so hard to tackle. Uh, and he really was underutilized for the rest of the game that odds are we probably lose. If, if you go with what Brandon's saying, if, if they come out there and they're going for it and they're really trying to get down the field, other than just terrible clock management, there's a every chance that we lose that game. Though Andy Reid might have used up all three of his timeouts on that drive, left another minute on the clock, and then maybe we still win. But I agree with what Brandon's saying here. That that decision to go for two, the showing the guts, and then trusting Andy Reid to be a conservative bitch, it, it paid off. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously with them having the one-point lead, they were more conservative with their play, and we were able to zero in on what they were doing as opposed to if it's a tie game or if they're even losing by one, you know, they're trying to spread it out more and, and open up their playbook. But I like the call personally. It's definitely a, a balls-to-the-wall move, but I think in a game like that where we really had no business getting back into it the way we did, I was impressed with the fact that he was able to make that call. I understand why some people don't like it. You know, you have the opportunity to climb back into the game. You know, you just want to take it into overtime. But with conditions like that, playing on that turf or grass, whatever they play on grass, I believe, uh, that, that's like cement. If we get that two points and we go up by one with a couple minutes left, more than likely you'd be able to still have the same outcome. But the way it ended and everything worked out, it, it couldn't have been any better. Actually, that it is a grass field, but it's heated. You could see the steam just rising straight up off of that thing. It was a, probably about 45 degrees or so. It wasn't nearly as cold as it seems like it should be. I heard Delaney after the game literally say it was like falling on cement. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't well, know. Well, it's because that. he was cold as fuck. He couldn't feel his skin anymore. <laughs> yeah. the, the, the field wasn't the problem. It was the fact that you had skin and flesh and you were wearing fucking tights and it was two degrees. All those guys were like falling on, on cement because their skin was just broken. Can I ask how you know that it's heated? Uh, both because they made a big deal about it at the game. Uh, on on the, the pregame stuff, they were talking about it, and uh, they were showing pictures about how they've laid all these hot water lines underneath the field and then they put the grass back over the top of it so it heats the field. And uh, I was talking to the Chiefs fans there, and you, you're watching the steam come off the field once they pulled the cover off because they've heated the field. They've got hot water lines under there. The, uh, the hot water lines are running right about uh, 65 degrees. And so the field itself is usually between 35 and 45. Some things I wanted to tack on to here after we got the uh, signs um, lecture out of the way from Glenn there is, is I don't know if we do win, but the thing is, is I don't know if we win if we make the two-point conversion. With the amount of time that they had left and Kansas City moving the ball down the field, all they had to do was go for a field goal. And that's all they would have to do if we were tied or if we were winning by one. And obviously if we're winning by one, they're going to be a little bit more uh, gutsy, a little bit more ballsy, uh, but still the same game plan pretty much if we're tied. I think not getting that two-point conversion is what won this game for us. Because if they drive down the field, then they just set on the ball, set on the ball, set on the ball, kick a field goal. Or, you know, just try to waste time and kick a field goal to go out with a win. I think not getting the two-point conversion 
is what won this game for us. I know that sounds ludicrous, uh, but given the time that we had left, and we did stop Kansas City um, semi-regularly, but they really, and Glenn, you mentioned this, underutilized their weapons. Travis Kelsey had only a handful of targets, and it was like he, he was extremely productive for the amount of targets that he had. Tyreek Hill had one legitimate touch in the game, and it was a touchdown. Like it really blows my mind that they did not send the ball to those two. When Tennessee has an issue with tight ends and has an issue with tackling small, speedy guys. And, you know, they have, I mean, two of the perfect examples in the entire NFL right there with Hill and, and Travis Kelsey and really underutilized both of them. It completely befuddles me why they didn't try to, to hit Kelsey really like every four plays and didn't try to get the ball in. They really tried a lot of stuff with Tyreek Hill where they faked like they were going to Tyreek Hill and then didn't. And it seemed like every time they did that, it blew up in their face. And I feel like if they just gave the ball to Tyreek Hill, a lot of those plays probably would have ended up different for them. I agree. Yeah. You know, they, they didn't use their players nearly enough. And, you know, I was obviously sitting there with the Kansas City fans all bitching that why aren't we running Hill? Where is Kelsey? Because I was talking before the game going, you know, if, if Kelsey blows up this day, you have a good shot at winning because we can't do anything with a tight end right now. Well, that's the thing, too, is like how many plays did we see Tyreek Hill fake? Like a, a Hill fake and then they do something. And we saw that maybe seven, eight times in that game. And we saw one Tyreek Hill run. And they did target him a few times in the passing game. We were able to stop those. But, you know, you have like eight fakes and then one where you actually go to him and that one play is, you know, a very long touchdown to set up uh, an early lead for the Kansas City Chiefs. It really blows my mind that they didn't try to work him in more. There was a lot of times in this game, guys, that, you know, we keep saying it, where they ran a couple times they ran the long slant with Kelsey twice that they ran it, and they picked up about 18 yards each time, uh, and then they don't go to it. And, Glenn, me and you were talking, you just mentioned, they kept using them to jam Arakpo and Morgan and then go out, and that really fucked up Kelsey's timing coming off there. If they don't do that, maybe Arakpo and Morgan have an extra sack, but likely chance that Kelsey has about 50 more yards, maybe a touchdown. I think they got thrown off the game plan once they saw the way we were able to stop them when they were on the third and one fourth and one I think that definitely between that and Alex Smith throwing the the interception to Sean Sims I think Andy Reid kind of put the handcuffs on on Alex Smith and their offense and they didn't really utilize their strongest weapons the way they should have and ultimately that could cost them the game the only thing I did not like about when they decided to go for two was the fact that we didn't have any timeouts at that point and I'm not sure. I think, what did we have, three minutes to go? Mm-hmm. By the yeah, time I mean, we that's... ran out of timeouts, there was like six minutes and 56 seconds or something like that, I believe, when we ran out of timeouts. But I agree. That was that scared me. That's the only thing that really concerned me at that point because I like the ballsy call in a game like that where everybody knew we had a chance to win it, but to go into a 14 nothing hole to start the game, fumbles, turnovers, three turnovers almost killed us pretty much, but... We were able to somehow come back, and, and when we got to that point, I probably wouldn't even have thought of going for two, but I like the fact that he did. The only thing that really scared me was the fact that we had no timeouts, 
and I don't know what play call was actually called, but at the same time, I'm kind of glad that we didn't just go ahead and hand it to DeMarco and he got shut down, you know, no game. <laughs> but I mean, you know, we didn't get it. We didn't get any playoff, which is obviously the worst thing you can have. Ironically, it probably helped us come back and, and win the way we did, but I can't make that call. I'm not an NFL coach. I'm not a, I'm not a coach at all. I would have felt a lot better if they would have hammered uh, Henry back in there again. Exactly. That play that they ran, I went back and watched it. I was just trying to see if maybe a lot of times this season we've had success rolling Marcus to the right and releasing a tight end out off to the left. And I was looking to see if that's what we were doing, but no, the tight end stayed in the block. And the only guy who went in that direction was Murray once he saw that nothing was going to happen with this play. He took off and kind of put his hand up like, hey, hit me. But it was already too late by then. He wasn't designed to go out either. I, I don't believe that Murray completely spaced out on what his assignment was there. He stayed in the block and prevent the backside from coming over and getting Marcus. And so we set three guys into a pattern on the right half of the end zone. And there was no chance that you're getting the ball in there when everybody knew you were running the ball as soon as Mark, I mean, you were throwing the ball as soon as Marcus took off to that side, because the way the blocking was setting up, they weren't trying to run it in. Uh, or at least that's not what the play developed into. So you, you look at the play, it was an awful play. I don't know if Marcus checked into that because of something he saw or what, but I would have much rather have just hammered Henry in there and taken my shot with that because he had great success this game. You know, if it's if it's a do-or-die play and you're trying to do the unexpected to make sure you get that two points, I'm going with the, the patented uh, Anthony Fasano play on, <laughs> on the other side of the field. I mean, that seems to work every single time we call it. And that's what I thought they were going to do, but that's why I went back and watched to see if maybe I missed something during the game and no. He stayed in and blocked. There was no intent to throw him the ball there. They kind of did something like a little bit. It's not the same, but, you know, they, they had Rashad Matthews try to turn around and come back the opposite direction, but not all the way back, but just kind of back and stop real quick. But by the time he got open, Marcus didn't have the throw there. So it wasn't exactly like going the opposite side like we see on that Fasano play, uh, like we saw against the Saints last year, but he – runs and cuts to the right like a little drag route and cuts back immediately uh but the safety was down once the safety pushed back and he and you know matthews is by himself that was where marcus was trying to get the ball but he just he didn't have a window to do it yeah i mean ultimately it failed but i would much rather this is where i disagree with you guys i would much rather have in a play like that a do or die situation have marcus make a play whether on the ground or in the air as opposed to just handing it off to either back i can see that it just i would have liked a better play the 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 patterns that they ran had very low chance of success to me with him also rolling to that side of the field and just the whole other side of the end zone just empty and no one even headed in that direction as much as i would love to agree with you there on most days i would but as good as derrick henry was in this game i i would have just gave the ball to derrick henry again and that leads us perfectly into our next question here this one's sent in by mallory walsh and she asks do you think it was a mistake after we saw derrick henry have so much success that we really let off of derrick henry and saw more more of demarco murray in this game at the time in the feel of the game it really felt like we should have seen more uh derrick henry i was saying the uh same thing sitting there on the sidelines i was watching the game and when henry was in there just the attitude of our offensive line changed, it seemed. Uh, just you know, he's, he's obviously a different back than uh, DeMarco Murray. And so the, the 
the the tempo of the game when he was in there, it, it was much more of the power run, and the Chiefs just did not seem to be able to answer him. Just they didn't really want to get in there and tackle him. When they shot in, he he just went right through him. It felt like of all the games we've had, this was the game that Henry had the best chance at to be the better back. Uh, he seemed to be the better back for most of the game as far as just pure running. Uh, you know, I'm not taking anything away from DeMarco Murray. He, he's a great back. His his ability to go out there and catch the ball was absolutely key to our success this game. He had five catches for 52 yards. His long was 19. He, he's, he is the best back on the team. But this game and these temperatures against this opponent, I think Derrick Henry was the better back and we should have used him more. Yeah, hard to argue that. I agree with a lot of your points. I actually think this next upcoming game with Jacksonville, we're going to see a lot more of Derrick Henry to basically get DeMarco Murray a little bit of rest before we really need to go into Houston and definitely use both of our guys. But I really think uh, Henry's going to be used a lot more in this coming week. I agree with you, Matt, in that point. Uh, Looking forward to next week. Before I touch on that, though, in, in this game, after we saw... Derrick Henry, really, I mean, take off. It seemed like six, seven yards a clip. Every time he touched the ball, he was going and and going for great yardage. And then he was just gone, you know, for most of the game there and until towards the end, uh, I believe, is when we saw him again. And at that time, I, I was – and, I, you know, obviously all, all three of us have been the biggest DeMarco Murray fans. Uh, but I, I believe you feed the hot hand. And, and right then – Henry had their number, and I wanted to see a lot more of him uh, at that point because of how well he was running against this team. I mean, he was – it seemed like every play, it was the third guy that hit him brought him down. I mean, he was breaking the initial tackle, the second tackle, and then the third guy would bring him down on almost every single play. But as for next week, you know, absolutely, I want to see a lot of Derrick Henry in this next game going up against the Jaguars. One, obviously – the biggest reason is uh, to rest DeMarco Murray, get him ready for a must-win game against the Houston Texans for the division. But another reason is so he can make a giant bitch out of Jalen Ramsey again. <laughs> yeah, I was just about, <laughs> just about to say, the, the poll question should be, how many yards are we going to drag him this week? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That'll I, be the, I like that. That's already, already the poll question. Absolutely. <laughs> Good call on that. Yeah, uh, my my thing with Derrick Henry is I want to see a lot of Derrick Henry because I want us to go out there and crush what little will the fight that the Jags have left. This is not just a trap game, but it's a game that we can break them early if we don't fuck it up. And that yeah. means that we should see a lot of Derrick Henry after midway through the second quarter, definitely the second half. Yeah, I think he needs the experience as well. I mean, getting ready for this playoff run that we're pretty much there. I'm not saying we're there yet, but... Not that hard of an obstacle to get in. You know, we control our own destiny. We need him to get that playing experience under his belt so so we can move and, and be the best we can be with both guys. Absolutely. But let's move on to the next question here. Josh Pryor. And he asks, Has LaShawn Sims done enough in the past few weeks to make you think that we do not have to use two top priority offseason acquisitions on cornerbacks. No. Uh, <laughs> I, I like him a lot. I really do. Uh, but he, he's not a shutdown corner at this stage of his uh, career. And there's bigger questions going on 
Uh, it's not LaShawn Sims. It's the rest of the group. Uh, Jason McCourty, uh, he's got a year or two left. McCain, Blake, if they're here, I don't want to see those guys in the field very much. So replacing the secondary is going to be the top priority. If you know Sims from here on out gets three interceptions a game, we still have to get two more guys in here because he can't do it on his own. Uh, that's what McCourty's been trying to do for most of his career, playing on some pretty bad teams, is trying to be the the, you know, the lone guy out there. we we got to get some guys who can handle these teams with multiple receivers. If you everybody you play has one good receiver and a bunch of garbage, okay, sure. That's not the reality of the NFL. That's not how you win in the playoffs. You've got to be able to cover people all across the field. Exactly. The answer is no, but I, I'm much more impressed with excuse me, much more impressed with him than I've ever been. Um, He's definitely got talent and I think experience is going to be what he needs to get better, you know, each week. I think that's, that's definitely going to help him and help us as a whole. But like you said, with Blake and McCain, those guys, whether they're back or not, we cannot rely on just those guys with LaShawn Sims, you know, on the field. He's not that kind of cornerback. Now, Granted, we probably don't need to address two corners in the draft, but I definitely think we need to at least with one and probably get one of the better, when I say better, better than McCain or better than Blake in free agency. I'm definitely impressed with with Sims, and I do like the direction he's headed, and I know all the guys in the locker room are are pleasantly surprised with his performance lately because it didn't get much worse than when we played Chicago with him, and he's, he's done a complete 180 in my eyes, so... All we need to do is, is keep getting these young guys their experience like we've been calling for all year, keep Blake off the field. Blake's actually – Blake, ironically, has had key moments in these last couple of weeks where I haven't hated him quite as much. I don't want to see him next year, and McCain's actually stepped up quite a bit, but I don't see – I don't think he was ever signed to more than a one-year deal to begin with. So cornerback is definitely needed to be addressed not necessarily more than one in the draft, but we definitely need to, to acquire a free agent. Yeah, the, the I hate him less now is all you really need to know about that whole conversation right there. Is we we yeah. hate him less because he's pointing in the right fucking direction. That's how bad he's been. <laughs> you know, it, it, he, he's a guy you have to leave in zone. You don't have any flexible options with him. So that, that, that's who he is. The only thing he really has for us is speed, in my opinion. And he's like, McCain has that covered more than Blake does, in my opinion. I mean, uh, Blake's a liability. And I, I he's getting more snaps now. And we're going to talk about this later in the show. But right now, Blake's getting the most snaps out of any corner. And it still blows my mind. that I know that, you know, McCain's not a young guy, obviously. Not a, a rookie. Uh, Sims is. But they're playing at a much higher rate. And, and I'd like to see a lot more of them than Blake, if that's the options. But obviously, I agree with you guys here. We need to bring in uh, top-level talent. And for a few reasons, it's Blake and, and McCain have really stepped up. Uh, McCain, even in that Bears game, McCain looked good. Sims looked bad in that game, but since then has looked fantastic against some really great talent at wide receiver. I mean, you look at... That Broncos team, not a good quarterback, obviously, and I'll touch on that, but great wide receivers he was playing against, and and Kansas City has you know a couple talented receivers in, in their um, wide receiving core. But the big thing is is quarterback talent, man. 
You're watching Sims and McCain go up against average, at best, quarterbacks. You know, Alex Smith is, I think he's like the king of average. He is as good as average can be. Everybody else that, you know, Trevor Simeon is bad. And, and I know that he's had some success, but Trevor Simeon's bad. And then we faced an injured Trevor Simeon. So we, we faced a guy who was a, a bad quarterback at his worst. And, you know, that's why he looked so good. Look at what Matt Barkley did. That's a bad quarterback. And he did some stuff against us. Although now we're seeing uh, Matt Barkley do some damage against a lot of teams. You know, he's had a good run so far. But I, I like Sims a lot. I think McCain, I'd like to see him stick around uh, just because of, you know, what he provides and dime looks and stuff like that. And when he plays against a slot receiver, I mean, he's fantastic. I, I mean, I like I like McCain for that role. And I don't think we have anybody on our team that fills that role better than he does. I want to see Blake off the team, obviously. But I still think you need two guys. Uh, and the biggest reason is McCourty. If we had McCourty, a healthy, ready, a little bit younger McCourty, then I'd say we just needed one guy. But we don't. We have old, hobbled McCourty. And that's why we need two top priority acquisitions as prior put it i think alden hobbled is maybe a little unfair <laughs> i mean he's we're seeing a guy right now that's i mean i think he's obviously still hurt i and, i agree but olden hobbled is it's a bit much man <laughs> all right i think you're just a little bit sensitive because you are the representative for olden hobbled <laughs> I, no argument here i i am olden hobbled that's why i'm saying he is not <laughs> It was uh, – no, but, um, you know, obviously I love Jason McCourty. Uh, the guy's played his heart out. And, you know, he's been here for so many bad years of, of the Tennessee Titans. He's been the lone bright spot for us how many seasons. Um, and then we started adding talent to this roster. And, you know, for a while it was just him and Delaney. And, you know, and now we're starting to add guys, and I feel for him because this guy isn't a good player. And I've seen him take a lot of slack lately, obviously because of the way he's played, but, you know, I have, a, I have a spot in my heart for McCourty always because he was there through real shitty seasons and played his heart out. But he's getting to that the end of his career. And uh, maybe a move to safety, and, you know, that, that could help, but I think we still need to bring in two, either through free agency or through the draft, two big starting cornerbacks. I want to draft a you know a stud corner, but there's no point in my eyes to draft two cornerbacks who are going to be learning as they go. I we we need a veteran presence out there for sure. Oh no, I and agree I, with that. I would say if we're gonna if we were gonna do it through the draft only, that it would be the first two top picks we'd have to go cornerback cornerback, and I don't see us doing that. Yeah, I really hope not. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that too. I, I mean, if that's what we're stuck doing, then that means we couldn't bring anybody in. And the the one thing that this season shows is that the Titans are headed in the right direction, and we're headed there a lot quicker than any of us thought. And getting a a, a top free agent corner in, that shouldn't be difficult. Uh, the only question you're going to have is getting Robinson to pay them enough for them to come here because he's going to be careful with his money. It's not that he doesn't want them and that he won't pay for the right guy. It's convincing him that this guy is the right guy 
whoever that is, convincing him that's going to be the right guy. Uh, I would still like to get two corners in this draft. I just want one top-level corner, and then let's go find our next Sims down there, another guy who can contribute or maybe develop in the next couple of years into a starting corner after whoever we bring in starts to get a little bit older. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that, but for the help, the the urgency of our secondary that it is right now, you know, there's nothing wrong with bringing a project along, but that's not the short-term solution that we're all looking for. No, so we, we don't want, you know, two starting rookie cornerbacks coming out there next year or two starting rookie cornerbacks with a one-year guy being the veteran presence for them. However, Delaney Walker did say we didn't need another rookie offensive lineman, and Jack Conklin has turned out pretty good. <laughs> he did. Yeah, he, he's done okay for Absolutely. himself. So I, I think Delaney would you know step back from that statement as well. So if you find the right guy, it doesn't matter who he is. But you know that's what John Robinson's here for. Yeah, and John Robinson took a lot of grief for making that trade back up to get Conklin, and I mean it's it's paid dividends. So absolutely, you know at that, that that time even, and I know Glenn was not happy with it at the time, and, and neither was I. Matt, you were. I think that you were okay with it. I don't think you were happy. I think you were okay with it. Me and Glenn at the time, uh, both when they traded back up for that pick. We thought it was not going to be Conklin. We thought for sure that it was going to be our our uh, pot smoking friend over there in Miami now. And and at the time, I thought that was a bad pick. And and boy, am I glad to be wrong. Yeah, I think I questioned whether he would be there when we were initially picking. I think that was my only issue. I liked Conklin, but I I, I certainly didn't want um, Tunsil. But it is what it is now. It doesn't matter. Well, does it feel good to be right? wasn't right, but I wasn't wrong. I'll put it that way. <laughs> that, that was your one shot. After is this, it? Yeah. Does it feel good to not be wrong? Then is the question. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely. And you know, I, I haven't followed him closely, but I uh, believe he's played guard all year, right? He's played a yeah, little because... bit of tackle, but uh, most yeah, like ninety nine percent guard. Yeah, yeah. It's been pretty much guard, and you know, it's just he's on the Dolphins. He's screwed for his life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, we'll move on to the next question here. Logan Gillespie sends this one in, and he asks, Let, let's pretend you guys are John Robinson. What do you think, and this ties in exactly what we were just talking about, what do you think is the best thing to do with Jason McCourty? Move him to safety, leave him alone where he is, and restructure the contract, or you know, find a trading partner? What do you think? the best thing to do with Jason McCourty going into the off season. I think you have to pressure him to redo his deal. He's making way too much money next year. He's what 12 to $14 million. And you know, th- this year we've seen him take a step back towards the end of the season. He's just wearing down. He's at that age where he's past 30. He doesn't get better from here. Very few guys. There's not a lot of Charles Woodson's in the world. He, this is the end as far as, or more so, this is the peak. This is as good as he's going to get from here on out. It's all downhill. Uh, so you've got to have him just renegotiate that contract. He's got another year left, and it's a big year. So either you cut him and you take the loss, or else you get him to renegotiate that deal, spread that out a little bit, and then, then you have the option to move him to safety or move him around and let him mentor guys, that kind of thing. Exactly. His contract is heavy loaded at the end. So he's scheduled to make $7 million next year, and we can't have that. Whether he wants to renegotiate and stay at corner or move to safety, whatever, that's fine. But for the performance we've had this season, 
uh, we we can't keep him at that price. And I don't know how he feels about that. I'm sure, you know, he's been a team guy for years and, and it's Rustin Webster's fault that, you know, he's had to put up with so many shitty years here. But the fact that, you know, we're starting to turn it around, I think he realizes that he's not what he once was. And that's really not a fair price to keep him here. Right. I mean, you guys, he says $7 million for his salary, but with his signing bonus, he's an 8.8, million dollar cap hit uh for next season i was thinking of (laughs) what's that yeah i said it's still better than the number i was thinking of yeah no i'm glad that you're not our general manager over there glenn (laughs) you're damn right i wouldn't have signed him to that deal (laughs) (laughs) glenn's over here paying everybody he's like oprah just sending cars to everybody uh no but i mean that's a huge cap hit man uh for a guy and like look we love i know i'm speak for you guys too we love jason mccourty but you know, as injured, as injury prone as he's been, you know, and the production has been dropping off, we you know, we can't, as a team, cannot afford to have him around for that kind of money. I think you see him either restructure the deal or leave, and I and I'd hate to see the guy leave. Obviously, I think he adds a lot of value to the team, but I mean, he's gonna have to settle for three or less a year if he wants to stay. And that's a gigantic drop off from what he's making right now. Yeah. And I, but I think that's fair. I mean, if he leaves, there's not going to be a huge demand for him. I think he's going to, he's going to end up somewhere. I, I honestly think he would agree to something like, you know, two and a half, three, something like that. I, I think he, he would take the rest of his money, spread it over the next two or three years. and He'd be okay. I don't know that you can get him down to three, maybe four and a half, something like that. But, you could probably redo him for his current deal or maybe four and four for like the next two years just to spread it out a little bit and ease up the uh, cap hit. All, all it is is you're just making space so your team can get better. And if the other option is not playing for a team that's clearly you know, getting ready for a strong playoff push next year, you know, no matter what happens this year, we're in really good shape for next year, you're going to want to be a part of that. And I'd like McCourty to stay here for the rest of his career. I think if we got two more years out of him, and maybe if he's not having to be the key guy and take that hard matchup every game, he's going to be a little fresher later in the season. And let him finish up his career and be a Titan for life. I literally just looked it up. He's 29 right now. So I, I actually thought he was a little bit older than that. I, I thought but, he was 30 this year. So okay. I actually thought he was a tad bit younger until I looked it up. I thought he was 28, to be honest. But still, I mean, you can tell I mean, he's getting there. And the injuries have been a, a constant problem. You look at the last season. I mean, he played, what, four games last year? I, I still think that $4 million is too much. Right now, for what we're, production we're seeing from his age, and I know you know, I know that there's a sentimental value there because he's been through us through like these shittiest years of being Tennessee Titans fans, uh, but Jason McCourty is not worth $4 million right now. And, you know, I think he's going to have to take a three and a half or less. It could happen. We'll find out what John Robinson does. Right. All right. So let's the last question here. Uh, Chris Epps sends this one. And this is a little bit different, guys. I, I've purposefully not told you about this question. And here's why. Chris was asking us about how many teams end up going from worst in their division to first in their division. Uh, so I pulled data from the last 10 years. Obviously, can't use this year. It's not over yet. So 2005 to 2010. Over that span, 
How many teams do you think have gone worst to first in one year? Two. I'm going to say four. It has happened 13 times in the last 10 years, and it's happened every single year except for 2014. All right. And this is, I have some crazy (laughs) numbers for you here because I thought the same thing. Until I looked it up, I had the exact same thought in my head that you guys did. And then I looked it up, and extraordinary numbers here. Well, you look at this season, the Titans, the Cowboys, and the Buccaneers all have a chance to do it right now this season. And then that 13 teams that have done it, that's 16% of last place teams in the last 10 years. 23 teams, or 29%, in that time frame have gone from worst to the playoffs. And that's division champions and wild card. And then 36 or 45% have stayed in, in last place. Uh, you know, which that's, you know, the majority of what these teams do. But if you exclude the Bills, the Browns, and the Buccaneers, then teams are more likely to get in the playoffs than they are to stay in last place if they were in last place the year before. <laughs> I think we were thinking lower because of our situation, us being a a three-win team and, you know, turning it around to a playoff team. I don't think there's been teams in the last 10 years that have made that that drastic of a a jump for that many games, but first to last in the division could be a two-game separation, which I didn't really, I didn't consider that when I first, when you first asked the question, but for for our situation... You look at those like uh, a handful of years ago, like oh eight oh nine in the AFC West, when like every team was eight and eight. I mean, you know, it's not a big jump yeah. from uh, seven and nine to nine and seven. That's what yeah, I mean. Definitely. And I don't think you know when you asked that question initially. I'm thinking, you know, last in the league, we have the first draft pick overall to. We're talking about playoffs right now. I don't Which, think any teams have done that. Yeah, still, I think if that would have been the question, then we would have been closer at least. Yeah, well, you have that, you know, the worst schedule, the worst, last place schedule of your conference, and then you get to the playoffs, and now you have to play a tougher, you know, schedule. That's how, usually how that's going to end up happening to you. Quite possibly. I, I mean, it's just it's that hard to build a dynasty or any kind of sustained success in this league because of parity in the salary cap. But I just thought that was an interesting stat there. You know, I looked it up, and... And then fell down the wormhole and couldn't quit looking it up. Uh, just thought it was an interesting thing to bring up is you have 13 teams, 16% of teams in the last 10 years. And that is really low. I looked at the, the you know, the 2000s and the early years, and it was a way higher number. In the 90s, it was a way higher number. Um, and still, but kind of mind-boggling that uh, 13 teams were able to do it in the 2000s, um, go from worst to first in just one season. But we're going to move into the news, guys. The first biggest and saddest piece of news, the patron saint of two-tone uncensored, Carl Klug, will miss the rest of the season after tearing his ACL in Sunday's matchup against the Chiefs. Uh, hard news to take. And, you know, a guy that, you know, no kidding, when we've loved and, uh, you know, 100% hard. Uh, not fun losing a guy like him. Absolutely. No, when, when Carl went down to the game, I, I was trying to convince myself that when he got up and walked off the field, he was going to be all right. I was like, he's okay. He's, he's fine. He's fine. 
know, when I, I heard on the drive home that he was definitely done for the year, uh, yeah, it broke my heart a little bit because we, we definitely love Klug. And we're going to miss him. The, the guys behind him are going to have to really step up because what he brings, that intensity, the uh, the, the nonstop motor, they're, they're going to have to fill that void. They're going to have to step up and prove that they want to be on this team because I honestly think uh, defensive line is another spot that we're going to be looking at this offseason. You know, just the whole defense is going to be under review. And if you don't come out and play with everything you've got every play, they're going to find somebody else who will. Yeah, it sucks. He, uh, it, It's good timing for us that, you know, it happened late in the season. It sucks for him because this is his contract year coming up. And an Achilles injury is one of the hardest ones to come back from. So, you know, he, he's going to have to put that, that extra work in just to make it back. And I hope he does, and I, I'd love to have him back, but it, it's – Cards are stacked against him, so who knows? Carl Klug is—I mean, like I have no—I have no doubt uh, that this is a guy that'll be back and he'll jump back. He's just—he's just that guy, you know. He's a hundred percent hard. He's a hundred percent effort, and he, he works his ass off to get everything. Uh, so I have no doubt that he'll be back, and I—and I hope he is, and I hope that he, I hope he stays a Titan because I love having him on the team. Uh, but we'll move on to the next piece of news here. Obviously, the Pro Bowl uh, rosters have been announced. Five Titans made it into the Pro Bowl. That's obviously DeMarco Murray, Taylor Lewan, uh Delaney Walker, Jarrell Casey, and uh, Brian Arakbo. And then also we have three on the alternate list uh, with Marcus Mariota, Jalston Fowler, and Jack Conklin. Uh, with everything that we've seen happen over the last handful of years with the Pro Bowl, it's pretty safe to assume that those three are going to make it. But what I found interesting, guys, is we're very close to the top of the list and amount of Pro Bowlers, not alternates, just straight guys that made it onto the starting roster. Uh, I, th- I believe we're setting at tied for four or tied for third, and most Pro Bowlers this year. Again, the Raiders snuck in seven, but you know it, it's a nice turnaround. It, it shows you how much has changed this team, you know, this fast. Because last year we got two guys in, and they were both alternates. Uh, this year, all three of our alternates are. You know, there's a pretty decent chance they get in there, and all of a sudden, you know, we, we've got eight. Or hopefully, we're in the house and we say, uh, "Screw off with your uh, Pro Bowl people come in." Yeah, exactly how I feel. I mean. When we get when we were getting snubbed for the last few years, everybody pretty much didn't give a shit because it's the Pro Bowl and fan voting and blah blah blah. I still feel the same way. I think honestly that for Jack Conklin not to get in, I, I mean, it's a flawed system. And obviously, I'm happy with the five we got. I think it's well deserved, and it's amazing what one year can do. Obviously, but I, I really think that. Derek Morgan deserves mention also. The team as a whole has stepped up tremendously, and whether they they make this Pro Bowl or not, a lot of guys are deserving of it. And we do have five. It's something to be proud of. Like Glenn just said, hopefully they don't play because we're busy playing in the playoffs. But, you know, it it would give me a reason to watch it because I haven't watched the Pro Bowl in years. I know it's very unlikely, but how good would it feel, you know, after all of these years of snubs that we have had, to make it to the Super Bowl and nobody from the fucking Titans goes. <laughs> right. 
I would love that because it's like, all right, well, you know, you finally want us, but we don't want you. We have other things to do now. So right, right, exactly. It's that like pretty woman moment. <laughs> but uh, we're gonna move on now to more. It's less Titans news, um, more in the division. Gus Bradley been fired from the head coach of the Jaguars after a 14 and 48 run as the head coach of Jacksonville. That's about three and a half losses per win for Gus Bradley. And now Doug Marone, who is the former head coach of the Bills and was the Jacksonville Jaguars offensive line coach, named to the interim head coach. So here's the questions, guys. Is who do you think will replace him is number one. How do you think it affects this game coming up is two. And then three, do you think that the firing of Gus Bradley was pressure put on the Jaguars after the firing of Jeff Fisher for the Rams, so they both can go after, you know, obviously the same targets. It was a late firing. It should have happened earlier in the year. Uh, I have a Jaguars fan at work who is ecstatic that he's gone. You know, as she pointed out, they've lost a lot of close games. They're kind of where we were the last couple of years, where we kept losing games by less than seven. But they weren't ever going to get there with that guy. Bradley wasn't going to take them over the top. If nothing else, it doesn't seem like he knew what to do to elevate Bortles' game. The last offseason, Bortles went and did some work. He came back as a better player. He still had way too many interceptions. This year, his interceptions are down, his sacks are down, and he's a worse quarterback. When you look at his stats, it's like everything's set up for him to be a better quarterback except for a run game. He's got more reliable receivers, and he still can't get the job done. At some point in time, they need to sit Bortles down or just change what they're doing with the guy, and they just wouldn't do it. I think that's what cost him his job. There are a lot of names out there for people who they're suggesting you, know, you should come in, and it's kind of like us last year where you're going to have a really high draft pick, and what coach wouldn't want to come in with a chance to pick his guy there's every chance they take a quarterback this year and they push Bortles at the door or else make him compete against a rookie. The name I think is the most interesting to me would actually be Tom Coughlin. Bringing Tom Coughlin back because he's available. He built this place. He made it a proud franchise at one point and it's just been shit since he left. And I think that there's a chance that they bring Tom back to give him his one more shot. I'm going to agree with you here, Glenn, on a lot of these points and disagree with you on one major one. First off, I think that Conflin has to be the most interesting of all of the possibilities that they could bring in. You know, he was the last time the Jags were really good, and I know they had that one season where they made the playoffs without him, but, like, it's – this team has been mostly trash since he has left, and they were a good team starting out. With Coughlin, they are obviously a good opponent of ours. Uh, you know, they made it to the playoffs several years. Obviously, lost to us three times in one year. Let me say that again: three times in one year. <laughs> but they had a good team then. As for you know, moving forward with this franchise, I don't think you see them take a quarterback. I think Gus Bradley really mishandled this offense and mishandled this defense. I think Blake Bortles is still your quarterback of the future. I still have a lot of faith that he can be a good quarterback for this unit. And I still think that Blake Bortles 
could very well be the best Jaguars quarterback of all time. He was really, I mean, that offensive line is bad, is bad. They ignored it, and it's bad. The defense needs time to gel, and they need to bring in guys for depth. But they have a lot on that defense that obviously is likable. And if they fix the offensive line, obviously, I think that that will help Bortles out a lot, and you'll see him succeed. We've seen Blake Bortles have really good years and a young career. And I don't think that they'll go quarterback because I just don't think that you have something there with Blake Bortles that's special. Not to say that I think he's anywhere near Mariota right now. But I do think, I mean, you look last year, any sane person at the end of last year would say Derek Cook won, Blake Bortles two. Obviously, that's not the case right now. But I think that has a lot to do with the offensive line. Blake Bortles is the most sacked quarterback over the last three years by a large margin. He, he was the last two. This year, he's only got 30 sacks so far. This might be his career best. And he's still leading the last three years, though. <laughs> like I, I know, because he took so many the last two. He had, I think it was 104 the first two years in the league. That's right. a lot of abuse. And we've seen that break other quarterbacks. You know, some of these guys... That You come in those first couple of years. We saw it in Houston with Derek Carr. You come into the league, you get the David. shit kicked at you. Was it David there? Yeah, I'd Derek's always, in Oakland. I was to say, we saw it in Houston with Carr. You come into the league, you get the shit kicked out of you for two years, and you're, just, you're never the same guy afterwards. And I'm not saying that they have to get rid of him or that he can't be a good quarterback, he can't be salvaged. I'm just saying with a high draft pick, they could be thinking – if I see a quarterback in the draft, I can replace him. If they want to work with him, they could just get an offensive line real quick. They're going to have that high draft pick and start trading back and doing what we did this year. You know, trade back a little bit, get yourself a solid tackle, and get some extra draft picks and start putting some guys around him on that offense because he's got the receivers. His tight end didn't work out for him. He needs some running backs. TJ Hilton and Chris Ivory are not the guys. They really aren't. They're never going to be. Yeldon, TJ Yeldon and Chris Ivory are not the guys. Yeldon does not have the speed, and Ivory is a ghost of his former self this year. I thought he would be better there. I really thought Ivory would have a good season, but injuries and just age have caught up with him. So if they get him a line and a running back, you know, it could be a nice turnaround for him. It really could. But at the same time, whoever comes in, whatever coach comes in, if he evaluates him and says, I would rather trade him and draft this guy, I expect Khan to replace the whole front office. Every, every every person in that front office, I expect them to be gone and just whitewash and start over. You know, if it's bringing Coughlin back, Coughlin comes in, he brings in his guys, he replaces all that, and he sets a new tone and puts the, the team back on the right footings. I'm not the hugest fan of Coughlin. I just think he would be the right kind of guy for this franchise because they are so out of shape right now. They just, I don't get the impression that anybody agrees on the vision for the future. This Jaguars team needs a lot still. You know, everybody talked about them in the off season, and even I thought they were going to be a lot better than they were. But they do need a lot, and that running game obviously needs help. That offensive line needs help. All across the defense, they need depth and help. One major thing is the coach. Is I feel like a lot of these games. 
they've played themselves out with play calling. I feel like that's exactly what happened in this Texans game. You know, when they had the lead for so long in that game and then gave it up at the end, you know, to Tom Savage of all people, that was play calling. I don't blame that on Bortles. I don't blame that on the running game, on the defense. They had really bad play calling. You know, there was the wood third down where they ran man coverage, one-on-one man coverage with a heavy blitz on like a third and five or third and six, I believe it was. I mean, I mean, come on. Like, I can throw that ball. And it's a three-step drop and get rid of it. And, you know, that's the kind of stuff that you cannot get away with at the NFL level. You know, if you're playing in, you know, in college, like, yeah, those will work. If you are just a far better team than the other team, that'll work. Alabama gets away with that a lot. That does not work at the NFL level. That was something that really stuck out to me watching them this season. And I think, I I really doubt that they take a quarterback unless they take him really late as a backup. I don't expect them to take one early. I expect them to try to go offensive line or aim at the defense with this pick. The problem is, is you just don't know where to go with this team because there's just, there's talent there. It's just not working for you right now. Another interesting one is, is Kyle Shanahan, the offensive coordinator for the Atlanta Falcons, but he has said that he really wants to go somewhere where his dad, obviously Mike Shanahan, can be a president of a team. That'll be something interesting, you know, with this Jags front office, if they'll allow that, and Ron Jeremy, the the owner, (laughs) will allow that. Who are we referring to as Ron Jeremy? Shad Khan. He's like his twin. Oh, Shad Khan. Is he really? I've never looked at the guy. (laughs) <laughs> oh, you've never I, seen Shad Khan? I've, I've like seen pictures of him, but I never like up close and. You know, oh, you gotta him. look at it. I mean, he looks exactly like fucking Ron Jeremy. He looks like Ron Jeremy's like ugly brother. <laughs> that's 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 terrible. You know, I I never looked at him and thought pickled dick. I'm sorry. I mean, I, I can't speak for Shad Khan's dick. I, I have no idea, but he <laughs> looks in the face like Ron Jeremy. I got you. <laughs> All right, but uh, but the one last question here, guys, is. How much do you think it, it the Jags make this move because of the pressure put on by the Rams? And the way I'm wording this, let me explain. The Rams have now opened themselves to look at anybody, you know, to talk to David Shaw, to talk to Josh McDaniels, to talk to Kyle Shanahan, all of this stuff, where they can get a leg up, you know. They're, they're going to be the first team looking for a new head coach. Do you think that the Jags felt some pressure – and that's why they expedited this move, so they can start talking to a lot of these guys. Do you feel like that had any effect? I hadn't really thought about it, but it makes sense. Get, get the coaching wagon started. Uh, like, like you just said, if you, you cut them early, you can start talking to guys early. Just as soon as that the season ends for some of these guys, you're already ready to talk to them. You're not dealing with exiting from your other coach. and The staff knows what's going on. It lets you let your interim guy come in there and audition for a couple of weeks so that you can get that out of the way. And it, it gives you a little bit more time to interview guys because there, there's other coaches out there who aren't in the league that aren't bound and can't talk that you, you can go out to and talk to now and you know, go ahead and have those conversations before the season's over. So, yeah, that, that's possible. I hadn't thought about it. I just figured that they were tired of Gus Bradley's shit. Yeah, I mean – 
It was something that was brought to my attention, and the more I thought about, the more it makes sense. It's just a, we knew that this was happening. We've known for maybe a month or better that this was happening. You know, Jacksonville's been calling for it since the last year. So we knew this was going to happen. So it makes sense that we see that the Rams do it last week, obviously get rid of him so we can start this process. But, I mean, obviously we'll never know if that was part of it or not. But the next big thing, obviously, in the division is uh, Brock Osweiler benched. Tom Savage comes in, leads the comeback victory against the Jaguars. Brock benched because of the two interceptions that he had before the benching that occurred in Tom Savage, obviously, coming in. We play this team in two weeks. They've already named Tom Savage the starter for next week. You have to think that that's the guy that we're going to end up facing. You know the best thing about Tom Savage is it gave Chris Sims a chance to come out and act like an idiot. He posted on Bleacher Report today that he called this earlier in the year, which he very well may have, that Tom Savage would be the starter by the end of the year. It it wasn't such a wild call just because most of us believed Osweiler was going to be shit. And he hasn't disappointed in that regard. But, you know, he, he uh, Chris Sims said two years ago when he was coming out of the draft that there was only two guys he would take. It was Carr and Savage. And he wanted, you know, Savage if Carr wasn't available. So he's got one supporter who really believes in him and believes hard. And we'll see what happens. I watched every single pass he made in that game. And I didn't see anything that made me say, this guy's going to make a difference. He had three balls that hit defenders in hands. He was overthrowing people. He was underthrowing people. He looked like a backup quarterback, a guy who hasn't had a lot of time on the field. And he didn't get a lot of practice leading up to this game. So maybe we see a different guy come out this week. And I'm curious to see what happens. They're playing the Bengals. I'm curious to see what that defense does with Tom Savage. And that'll give us a better idea. You know, at least we get to see him play one full game as a starter before we play him. I dislike playing people that you don't have a chance to get a read on. It's the same danger thing with the Jaguars is we don't know what they're going to do. We have a pretty good idea about how they're going to play and how much heart they're going to put into it, but we don't know what they're going to do because we don't know their coach. You know, So I, I'm really curious to see what Tom Savage does this week. Well, I am in no way scared of Tom Savage. I watched this game uh, as well, or like watched the replay of it at least. And yeah, a lot of these passes are dink and dunk plays. I'm against obviously a secondary outside of Jalen Ramsey that has been garbage all year long. And, and you know, it really isn't impressive at all. This is Tom Savage, in my opinion, is Trevor Simeon. They have played with good defenses but they're not good quarterbacks by any stretch of the imagination. That's what Tom Savage is to me. Not taking anything away from the kid, it's just, you know, he looks better than Brock Osweiler, but who doesn't? <laughs> I mean, I think- but uh, he doesn't look good. You know, he's throwing high passes. We've seen a lot of young quarterbacks do this. He overthrows guys, like you said, hit three defenders right in the chest with footballs that should have been intercepted. This is not a guy that looks good, and I think that we're going to have an easy day against Tom Savage if that's who we have to play. And if it's Brock Osweiler, I don't really think that it's that bad. But one thing I have to bring up, Glenn, is I don't know if you've seen that video, 
But after Savage takes over the first drive, I believe it's the second drive for the, the Texans after that. Brock starts, there's a video of it. Brock starts walking out onto the field like he is going to take the team back over. And Tom Savage just runs right in front of him and like throws his helmet on real quick and goes out on the field. And Brock kind of is left there with like, his arms like in like the what kind of pose. Like, I'm not sure what to do. And like, oh, it's just fucking perfect, man. Like, it's just like, it's just like everything that you need to know about the Texans offense right now. I, I didn't see that part. Uh, I honestly thought what you were leading into there was when the fans were cheering Savage and booing Osweiler so much that the Texans players had to go calm the fans down and get them to stop ripping their quarterback. Because the, the, that the was state also fun. erupted. Uh, they, they were so happy to see Osweiler sit down, and it, it has to be devastating for his morale. I didn't see the play you're talking about. That has to be just as bad. Like he's like he's like starts walking out there. He's like, oh shit, that's right, I'm not playing. Oh, Damn, I'll put it on that? the. I'll make sure that I find it and I put it on the, uh, or on our Facebook page because it is like awesome. Oh, I'll, he I'll starts, watch. Oh, he dang, starts dang. running out and he really like you can tell that he's just like Tom Savage cuts right in front of him. And throws his helmet on, and you can tell that Brock's kind of like, what the fuck, man? Like, pretty awesome moment. But let's move on. Christian McCaffrey, this has nothing to do with the Titans, but interesting enough. Christian McCaffrey and Leonard Fournette have both announced that they will not participate in the bowl game in order to get ready for the draft. What's your opinion of this? It's a business decision. I'm honestly fine with it. The, The bowl games aren't a big deal. It doesn't mean anything. If you talk to the coaches... Unless they're playing for a championship of some type, you know, bowl wins are nice, but unless they're playing for a championship of some type, most of the coaches use that time leading up to the bowl game as a chance to get extra practice in for the guys next year. That's what they're worried about. At that point in time, the seniors, they don't care. The guys who are leaving for the draft, the coaches are done with them. They're not going to get better. The best chance they have is that something they're going to get hurt, and they're going to end up you know, hurting their draft stock because they got hurt. So I'm okay with this. If I cared about either one of their teams, I'd be pissed off. You know, if, if one of OU's players decided that you know he was going to work on the draft, <coughs> Charles Walker, um, it, it would upset me a little bit, and it did. But I, I get why the fans would be mad, but it's a business decision. These guys aren't here to win bowl games. They're here to get to the NFL. The, the college game, whether they like it or not, is a stepping stone. These guys are making a business decision. I don't fault them for it. I hope it doesn't become a regular thing because it's like the one-and-done college basketball players. They don't mean anything to the school, and it kind of devalues the game a little bit. I'm a lot less interested in college basketball now that players have to go for one year. And those guys, they're here, they're gone, and that doesn't mean anything to the school, really, other than just that one season. So I get why these guys are leaving. I hope that we don't see a whole lot more of this in the next few years. Yeah, I'm not really – it doesn't upset me much. I've seen some people speak out against it, and obviously it weakens the college game. And, you know, there's no question about that. But Christian McCaffrey was going to play in the Sun Bowl. Who's fucking watching the Sun Bowl? You know, it, like I'll watch it because I have, like, literally nothing better to do, and I, I love football too much. But it's like me and Stanford fans are watching the Sun Bowl. There's like nobody else. Leonard Fournette, the LSU team has underperformed all year. 
and really has benefited a lot from being an SEC team this year because they're not good. And now you're losing the only thing on your team that was good. These are just not good bowl games. I, I firmly believe, you know, if this is, you know, let's say Deshaun Watson who's playing for a national championship, he doesn't make this move. Christian McCaffrey's in that position. He's not making this move. Uh, you know, at that kind of opportunity, that kind of chance, it's not going to happen. But these guys are playing in bowls, meaningless bowls, which and don't even get me started on that. There's a hundred of them nowadays. I don't blame them. It, it doesn't make a difference to me. You know, it would be upsetting, like you said. I'm a West Virginia fan. It'd be upsetting if an important West Virginia player did this to my team. But again, I, I probably wouldn't blame them. It's just, it's part of the game now, especially last year. Well, well, obviously, we saw one major injury that led to the loss of millions of dollars. These guys, even though the chance of injury is obviously really low, it's still an a million dollar, several million dollar decision, especially for Fournette, who will probably go top ten in this draft. McCaffrey will probably go a little bit later than that, but still could be a, a, a million dollar decision for him. If he decides to play and does get hurt. So, yeah, I don't blame these guys for this decision. It just it sets a dangerous precedent that I do not want to be... I do not want to see set. And that's has nothing to do with morals. It just has to do with me loving the college game. Yeah, it, I, I want to see the best players play in the championship series and if my team's going to a bowl game. Beyond that, if these guys don't want to play in one of the 800 different bowl games, then so be it. Who cares? All right, let's move on to playoff talk here. I think a lot of the fans know already. At this point, the division comes down to that game in Houston. The only way it does not is if we lose this week to the Jaguars and Houston beats Cincy, then that game does not matter and Houston will go to the championship. Sorry. Houston will win this division. Any other scenario in this game matters. Obviously, we need to beat Houston. Even if Houston beats Cincy, we still need to beat them in order to win the division. So that's, that is the division right there, is beat Houston. So let's move on to the wild card. There is still a possibility... Looking a little narrower, but not as narrow as think as some people might think. We need, obviously, we'd have to win one of our next two games. Because if we win both, we're in, you know, we win our division. So the wild card, let's say we win against Jacksonville, lose against Houston. This is what we'd need to happen. The Ravens have to lose out at Pittsburgh, at Cincinnati. Dolphins have to lose out at Buffalo, and then at home against the Patriots. Denver would have to lose one of their games at KC and then home against the Raiders. The one good thing is every game that I just mentioned to you, the team we need to lose is the underdog as of right now. And that's a lot has to happen, but it's a lot more likely than it sounds because all of these teams are underdogs. You know, we're talking about a Dolphins team that has no Ryan Tannehill. A Denver team, I mean, you have to lose one game at Kansas City versus the Raiders. That's done. Like, take that off the list because it's happening. Then you're looking at 
the Dolphins. Losing out at Bills, that's questionable. And then versus the Patriots, are the Patriots still trying to fight for home field advantage? Uh, you know, is is that a thing still? Or, you know, are they going to be starting backups? Obviously questionable there. Ravens at Pittsburgh, I think that's a loss. At Cincinnati, I know Cincinnati's been playing really well as of late. But what's the incentive for Cincinnati to win that game? So still a, a really tough road for us to get in the wild card. So really all of our eggs are laying in the divisional win basket. Yeah, it doesn't matter what else happens. If you win the division, you're in. That's the only focus. The, the Titans just have to not shit the bed the next two weeks, basically. There's no reason we can't beat the Jaguars. We've done it before in convincing fashion. They just fired their head coach. The, the team has pretty much shut it down. Uh, Jalen Ramsey will be crying some more because they're still losing. Th- there's not much left for them to play for other than to spoil it for us. And once you take a lead against a team in that situation, they generally just give up and the game is over. Uh, the, the big game will, like you said, be the Texans. We'll see who's the quarterback at that point. We'll see how much the team has rallied around, whoever it is. And they'll be playing for their playoff lives, too. They're in the same boat we are pretty much. So... That game is going to be incredible. We're all going to enjoy watching that game, I think, unless we lose next week. If we shut it down against the Jaguars, then forget about the playoffs. We can start, we can start working on our draft talk and all that crap. We have to win both games. It's must-win territory because you didn't win enough earlier in the season. This is what happens. You don't win enough games, but you still have a shot at the playoffs. Every game's a must-win. Every game's important. No matter how bad your opponent is, you've got to win. And so, if nothing else, this is absolute must-see TV because the Titans are on a roll. People want to see what we're doing. And if we make it to the playoffs, what an incredible story it is. All right, Glenn, the football outsiders are giving the Titans a 61.3 chance of winning the division and a 63.7 chance of making the playoffs. If you had to lay out your percentage for the Tennessee Titans winning this division, where would you put it at right now? Well, the the first number you're going to give them is against the Jaguars. 90% we win that game. The Texans, just depending on where they're at when we go in there and play them, I still think there's a good 75% chance we win that game just because we do have problems on our team still. We do still have weaknesses though their quarterback doesn't scare you, they still have some really fast players. They can get things done. And I'm going to say my, my feeling is we make the playoffs 80% right now. I, I really feel that strongly about it, that we're going to make it make the playoffs because everything I see from our team is these guys are 100% supporting each other. A guy has a bad play, he comes off the field, the whole team's there for him. There's no finger pointing. Everybody's on the same page. We are a downhill running team. We can throw the ball whenever we need to. Our defense is playing really hard, and as bad as the overall group is back there, the coaches are playing a game so that those guys aren't as exposed and aren't costing us a game more than absolutely necessary. So I think the Titans are doing everything right, and I'm going to go 80% that we make the playoffs because I don't see any reason we can't win these next two games. I'm going to say 81% because I'm not a pussy. So, I mean, there it is. <coughs> Fuck you. <laughs> no. Uh, I think that, obvi- I think we beat the Jaguars. I mean, that's, 
I know that they had to go through the coaching change, and that is literally the only scare that I have with the Jacksonville Jaguars is lately we've seen teams bounce back after coaching changes and you know perform well through mid-season coaching changes, I should say. The Texans don't scare me right now. Well, we're playing excellent football. We have taken down two top-level teams. Our last five games, we have beaten a potential division champion in the Green Bay Packers, the defending Super Bowl champions and the Denver Broncos, and a possible division champion and the Kansas City Chiefs. The Texans don't scare me right now. I feel like we are a much better team than the Texans played in Week 4. And the Texans are a much worse team than the team that we played in Week 4. I know it's... It might be going a little bit too far to maybe need to knock on wood, but neither of these teams scare me, and they almost scare me equally. And we saw the Texans team barely escape Jacksonville. I'm not afraid of either of these two teams. I think this is two easy wins for us going in, and we're going to go to the playoffs. I would literally, I'm, I'm putting in at 90, 92% that we're division champions right now. And... You know, I am the pessimistic on this show. Yeah, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Yeah, it's there's nothing scary about the Texans, uh, just like you said. But at the same time, I don't think they're as bad as you're making them out to be. They're not much worse, but they're not any better. And the te- Titans are much better than we were when we played them. When we played them, they had Clowney and J.J. Watt. They had the ghost formerly known as J.J. Watt. He was not 100% still at that point. Uh, and you know, Clowney, I think he's best when he's got JJ and Watt on the other side of him. I, I'll give it to you; their pass rush is not better. I think their receivers are healthier than the one we played them, and their quarterback situation is more uncertain, and their pass rush is weaker. So, yeah, they're in no way a better team than they were when they they just barely beat us, and a large part of us just gave that game away. So there's every reason for us to believe that we can beat them because we are a much better team than we were at that point in the season. No, absolutely. That's my like, a lot of what I have to say is just health-wise. And I believe if not, if I'm not mistaken, we did not have we did not have Jack Conklin for that game. Am I mistaken in saying that? I think he played that game. Who was it? We were missing somebody. I'm not sure. I, I think we had both of our tight ends that game. I mean, not, Wait, well, was that the game that back. Walkers set out? It could be. Not All I know is, you know, we, we have to stop the tight end, tackle the wide receivers, hit the quarterback. We're going to be all right. Yeah, obviously the big thing is that tight end. That tore us up last time. Um, but I, I really don't think – I don't think right now that either of these two teams are in our class right now. I think that Indianapolis, obviously, they beat us twice this year. They've had our card for a while. That's a team that you know just has our number. And yeah, that, Indian- that's Andrew Luck and a terrible secondary. That's right. That you know, and that happens. But I really feel that. Houston and Jacksonville are just not in the class that we're in right now. And and I feel like this is going to be two wins in, in order to get to 
you know, our first division win in far too long. Yeah, I, I agree. I think we win this game. I just I refuse to put a ninety percent on it because this is still the NFL. Anything could happen. If we were playing the Browns, different conversation, and even that was probably a little scarier. Than, you know, we absolutely have every right and reason to expect to make the playoffs this year at this point. Well, there you have it, folks. We're going to head into a quick commercial break here. When we come back, we have Titans insider Greg Arias joining us tonight. Uh, Very excited to have him. So we'll be right back after these short messages. Time to pay the bills. Some quick ads and we'll get right back to the show. Hey Titans fans, you've probably heard us talk about the group page several times on this show, and I'm sure you're wondering what we're talking about. Tennessee Titans Uncensored is a Facebook group page that was built by Titans fans for Titans fans and was founded by our very own Matt Necrone. If you're a Titans fan that's looking to talk about the latest Titan news, then this is where you need to be. And you can help me shit talk to crackheads. Because nobody likes crackheads. That is Tennessee Titans Uncensored on Facebook. Tighten up. Hey Titans fans, do you ever find yourself wondering what the hell's going on with Rubisky's play calling while you're watching the game? Do you wonder why a rec hope didn't get six sacks Have you ever wondered why our defense can shut down a star wide receiver but constantly gets burned down the middle by a backup tight end? If this sounds like you, then you need to know your enemy. Each week, Glenn Lossneiser from the Two-Tone Uncensored podcast hosts a write-up about this week's upcoming game. Glenn tells you which players have the favorable matchups each week and what schemes the Titans need to use in order to succeed. It comes out Wednesday-ish each week, sometimes Thursday morning. It's on our twotoneuncensored.podbean.com page and links from the Two Tone Uncensored Facebook page as soon as it posts. It's a real quick read and even has pictures for the kids. For the kids! You're listening to Two Tone Uncensored, brought to you by Podbean. Hey, this is Bo Scaife. You're listening to Two Tone Uncensored. Tighten up. All right, we're happy to have on the show with us tonight, Titans Insider Greg Aries. How you doing tonight, Greg? I'm well, guys. Thanks for inviting me on, and uh, pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you, man. Always our pleasure. Yeah, always great to have you on here. We just have a, a few questions to go with you here to ask you some stuff. Glenn, you can start us out. All right, we're going to start out with uh, the last couple of weeks here. In your opinion, which win tells you more about the Titans' progress this year from the, the beginning of the season where we were thinking, you know, four to six wins to now where we're thinking, you know, playoffs? Um, does Denver or Kansas City, which which one do you think is more tell, telling at this point about the Titans' progress and how they've gelled as a team? You know, that is a really great question. It's the first time that I've been asked that, and actually, to be honest, it's the first time I've really thought about it. So, uh, 
you can certainly find uh, valuable points in both the games. And from the Denver game, obviously the Titans got got out to an early lead uh, with the offense doing some good things. They struggled in the second half, but the defense was able to make enough plays to hang on. Then yesterday, Sunday, they go on the road to Kansas City. The weather was terrible. Marcus had never played or been in anything like that in his life. They struggled early in the game, yet they made enough plays to come back and win in the end. So it's a hard question, and uh, put on the spot, I don't want to not give you an answer, but I honestly think both are important for those reasons that I mentioned because the team has shown at this point in the season that they can play with the lead and hang on and come back on the road in very hostile conditions. Uh, I'm going to go, though, with Kansas City in that win yesterday because I honestly believe, guys, that we're going to look back on this game in two or three more years and think about the decision to go for two on Sunday against Kansas City. Yes, it failed, but the Titans came back and won the game. That's going to be a real turning point for this team because Mike Malarkey showed confidence in his team that, hey, I know my defense can get a stop. We're going to gamble here to win this game in regulation and not have to go to overtime. And if we don't get it done, there's still three minutes. We're going to get the ball back, and we're still going to win it. And I really think we'll look back in a few years and think about that moment as a turning point. Greg, in that Kansas City game, we had three turnovers to their one. And, you know, that's not the way we've been playing at all lately. We've been playing really turnover-free football. How how, um, how telling of it is this, or how impressed were you that we were able to turn the ball over that much and still come out with a win? Well, very impressive because any time you turn the football over three times in any NFL game, even if you're playing the Cleveland Browns and not to, to take a swipe at Cleveland this year, but obviously their record is what it is, you can't give any NFL team three turnovers or a two-turnover margin as it turns out. Of course, LaShawn Sims' interception uh, negated one of the three there, but you, you just can't do that, and especially against a good team and a team like Kansas City – that is leading the NFL in turnover margin the way they are, you know, you probably shouldn't win that football game in all honesty, but the Titans found a way to do it in spite of the weather and everything that was going on. They made enough plays. They did the things they needed to do. They got a break. Andy Reid cut them a a real break there when he called that timeout because it allowed Ryan to be able to uh, get the first kick kind of measure it and go, okay, I know what I did the first time. I got to hit it a little bit harder, or maybe I have to hit it a little bit lower, or whatever adjustment that he made, and obviously it worked. So, uh, you know, to overcome three turnovers is just huge in any game, but especially against a good team like that on the road in those kind of conditions. And when we were sitting in the stands, the uh, that first kick went – and the, the fans were going crazy as he, it was just a little bit short. The, the the little section of Titans fans that I was kind of in, you know, we, we were all just, you know, kind of trying to calm the Kansas City people down. It's like, you just lost the game. And uh, they were all like, he missed, he missed. Like, no, he just showed him exactly how far, how hard he needs to kick that ball. And, you know, just, just like you said, Greg, that, that timeout cost him the game. It was a great gift. And – one of the things during that game, there was a lot of people questioning um, his play calling, his time clock management that he's always kind of done. I thought that this was a game where, like you said, Mike Malarkey showed a lot of faith in his team. He, he set a tone for them that we're going to do whatever it takes to win all the time. 
Now, sitting in the stands, I did not like the decision to go for two. Uh, I didn't like the decision to kick the ball off either. And I was happy to be wrong. I'll, I'll take that win every time. Like you said, that was a very good statement win for us. And it, I think that has to help just the Titans fans in general calm down a little bit about Mike Malarkey. There's still some people who aren't on board with uh, the coach's ability to motivate his players and just, you know, that he's going to the right decision. I think this game showed a lot of just his faith in them, that they're going to fight for him, and that even if, you know, you don't necessarily like the decision from a pure football standpoint, he knows his team, he knows how they're feeling, and uh, he, he's going to be able to guide this ship pretty well, I think. Well, let, let me say this, and I've said this several times. Mike Malarkey might not be the second coming of Bill Belichick. He might not be the uh, equivalent of Nick Saban in the college ranks and what that guy's doing. But for this team at this moment and this time, I believe he is the right guy. And I go back and reference one thing from his career as a head coach prior to taking over the Titans. The one year that he had Drew Bledsoe as his quarterback in Buffalo, the guy won football games. When he had Chuck Roast and Pot Roast and every other uh, assembly of quarterbacks that he had in his Buffalo days, and when he went down in Jacksonville and he didn't have quarterbacks, he didn't win. We see in this league quarterbacks win games, and he has got a quarterback that is very capable of winning games in this league. Now he's got to have some help. This team still got some holes to uh, fill, but this guy for this team right now, I really believe, is the right guy for this team to at least be where they are right now. Now, is he the guy that can take them to the Super Bowl and win championships? That remains to be seen. But uh, for those that are against Mike at this point, you got to give the guy credit. Nobody had this team getting eight wins. Nobody had this team getting nine. I, honestly, uh, I've had them at six and ten. Right now, I feel like they're at least going to win nine games. The Jacksonville game, it will be tough with Jacksonville obviously firing the coach, but I think they win that one. Texans, that game is certainly winnable. It could be a struggle. This team could honestly get to 10-6, and six, and anybody that thinks that the turnaround that this team has made over the last two years to now and, and this guy isn't deserving, uh, well, I don't know what you're looking at. Now, as far as the decision to go for two, I loved it. I loved the decision itself. I hated the play call. I don't know uh, what in the world that was all about. Uh, we're never going to hear the true story about what the play was supposed to be. Obviously, they're not going to give away any secrets. I really thought they should have done something a little bit different on the play call itself. But I myself loved the call to go for two. You're going to win it right now in regulation. You're not going to tie this game up and potentially play three more minutes and have these guys stay out here in this frigid temperature. And, Glenn, you were there. You know how brutal it was to stand out there and try to play more football. He was going to win it or lose it for his guys in the regulation 60 minutes, and I applaud that. Greg, you kind of touched on it here a little bit. Um, the Jaguars obviously firing their head coach, Gus Bradley, and we've seen, at least in recent years, that spark that ignites under a team after they fire a head coach. It happened with us. You know, last year it happened with um, Miami last year. We've seen it before where they fire their head coach and then they come out a brand-new team. Does that worry you? And if so, how much does it worry you about playing the Jaguars next week? A little, obviously, because even though their record is not very good, even though they're out of the playoff hunt, 
these guys are still prideful. They're still NFL players. They're still NFL talent on that roster. And I think they're going to come out and want to show it. Now, at the same time, it's a little bit different than the Miami situation and the Titans situation when there was a little bit more uh, time left in the season. These guys have two games left uh, to be able to try to right this ship. Uh, they've got some other issues that I'm told uh, by some people in the media, and I won't comment on those. Uh, but uh, some other issues and things going on within that organization that they're trying to deal with. So it certainly concerns me a little, but not as much as it might have been if this had been four or five weeks ago when there were still several games left on the season schedule and they had something that they could, you know, really have something more to play for than just being able to upset the Titans and maybe knock them out of the playoffs. Certainly that'll be a motivating factor for them. They'll use that, but uh, it, it should be a concern, but not a heavy concern. Yeah. Hey, Greg, um, one of my major concerns moving forward is obviously the secondary. What do you think's going on with Jason McCourty's performance lately? And do you, do you think his previous injury is still a concern? You know, that question has been asked of Jason. He says he's fine. He feels fine. Now, he's going to be out this week. Uh, that's pretty much a given. Mike Malarkey said that today at the press conference that it uh, looked like Jason would be out. Also, I don't know if you guys heard it, Carl Klug done uh, ruptured Achilles. He's going to have to have surgery on that, and I hate that. Carl is an absolutely great guy. But yeah. uh, Jason won't admit to any lingering issues, and obviously, you know, you can speculate on it, but you can't really know for sure how a guy feels or if the injury is bothering him. I honestly think it's just the fact, guys, that age is catching up with him. He's played a lot of football for some bad football teams. He spent a lot of time on the field playing football when his team wasn't very good and they couldn't get off the field. And I just think that the situation is father time has done more to Jason, who, by the way, is an equally great guy. I mentioned that about Carl. Jason McCourty is a stand-up, 100% great individual. Uh, you know, But Father Time is going to catch all football players. It catches all of us in all of our professions sooner or later. And I think that's more the issue with Jason than it is any uh, lingering effects of an injury that he had previously. Well, we brought it up in the past, and you know, with him getting older – as his time is coming to an end probably sooner than later. How do you feel about the possibility of switching him to safety? You know, that wouldn't be the worst move in the world to me because, one, he's a veteran. He is a very smart guy on and off the field. I think he could make that change, much like his twin brother Devin has done with the Patriots. Now, Devin seems to have a little bit more uh, life left or tread on the tires, however you want to put it, the way he's playing right now, than what Jason has. But I certainly think that move to safety would be one that he would consider uh, to help this team. You know, he might not be uh, a starter, probably wouldn't be a starter, but still he would be a guy the way that they've played in the rotation this year that would get a lot of time and could help this team. And certainly uh, if he stays at cornerback, I think he's going to be in a battle not only to uh, get playing time, but even probably to make the roster, especially – uh, considering what I think that is going to be one area that John Robinson is going to look at both in free agency and the draft is cornerback. Yeah, he's the, that discussion about safety has come up a lot, uh, just like in our Facebook groups and such. It's you know people are like he can't play safety, he doesn't tackle hard enough. You know, as a corner, he likes to play soft and off of people, which suggests that he would be more comfortable as a safety. You know, once he has, like you said, when you get a little bit older. 
you know, you feel it later in the season, you start to lose a step. And as a safety, that step kind of comes back because you're already that much further down the field. As much as he likes to play off of people, we, we, we've all the, thought that possibly a move to safety once he's no longer the starting corner could help him out. He, he may not be a guy who wants to do that. You know, it's just it's speculation on our part for a way to keep him around the team. Um, well, I do want to touch on what you said about Carl Klug. He is one of our absolute favorite players. We talk about him quite a bit. Klug! Uh, exactly. <laughs> uh, Carl Klug has been one of my favorite players for a long time just because um, he, he's a maximum effort guy. When he's on the field, he gets everything he's got, and it's just it's refreshing to see a guy who just sells out every single play. He's, uh, he's always been one of our favorites. Absolutely, and as I said, he is an absolutely great guy. Now, the average Titan fan, if you haven't looked at a program or, or don't really, you know, you're not avid like I know you guys are, probably couldn't, couldn't pick Carl out of a lineup. He's not the guy that you see a lot in the spotlight, but he has been an absolute joy to uh, be around. I've had the opportunity over the course of his time here to, to meet his wife and, and his kids, and he's got a twin brother too, by the way, guys. It's not quite as big as he is. But uh, they look identical, and the first time I saw him, I'm like, I know who you are. you got to be his brother. And he's like, yes. Yeah. So, you know, had a conversation with him. Really great family, really great guy. And he's one of those that you hate to see this because, you know, an Achilles is an injury. Sometimes it's really difficult to come back from. Uh, not saying that he can't, but you know how that is with an Achilles that he may come back, he may not. If he comes back, he may never be the same. He may lose some of the speed that has been – uh, you know, now he's not a four-two guy, but he's fast enough to be an effective pass rusher because of his work ethic and the way he plays the game and that speed. And if he loses the speed, he'll still have the work ethic, but I don't know that he can be the same player. So certainly rooting for him. And I know the doctor that's going to do the surgery will do a great job. We've got some really good ones here uh, that uh, work on the Titans players, and, and they'll put him back together, and that part will be okay. It's just that I hope everything works out for him when he tries to return after this surgery because, uh, as I said, he is an absolutely phenomenal guy. Anytime a, a power player and someone who you know has a lot of hard impacts and is really torquing on that lower body gets an injury like that, you're, just, you're a little bit scared for him. Um, like, like you said, not everybody knows who he is, but we, we talk about him a lot on this show. He is definitely one of our favorite guys. Uh, m- moving back into Jason McCourty, uh, you know, what you were saying about the rotation of the young players, uh, with, with the obvious departure of Parrish Cox opening up some more room uh, for the younger players and more of a rotation, uh, we, we've seen a little bit of a guy that we highlighted early on uh, after the draft where Ryan and I really liked LaShawn Sims' ability to match up and play man. He's not the fastest guy, but he's a, he's a big enough corner, and he plays good, tight man and really challenges people. We, we've seen a lot of change in him since that first Chicago game where he kind of came out and he looked like a just a stone-cold rookie. And, you know, to this game, he obviously had the interception, but it was an interception on a play where he wasn't just lucky to be there. He, he was mirroring his man. He was keeping him under control. He read the quarterback. He made a great move and got the interception. How much have you been impressed with the improvement of him over just the last few games? Oh, absolutely. He uh... – he was a guy that impressed, and let me say this, Kalen Reed, the other rookie, Mr. Irrelevant, the seventh rounder, we were impressed with him coming out of camp. Now, uh, both those guys were rookies in camp, obviously. They had a lot to learn, uh, and 
the Titans made the decision to move him, you know, to release him and to pick him back up on the practice squad because they definitely wanted him around. He was a guy that had a uh, fourth, fifth, sixth round grade in a lot of different people's uh, rankings. So let's don't forget about him as a guy that I think is going to be a, a player in the future, uh, or at least a participant looking for time. But Sims has certainly uh, taken the opportunity that he's been given and making the most of it. And I think, uh, I, I won't say that he's going to be a starting corner next year, but I think he's certainly going to be a short are on the list, a short list of names to be a starting corner for this team, along with whomever they might sign in free agency, uh, potentially Jason McCourty and whomever they draft next year, along with Kalen Reed, who I think will be back in that battle as well, because I honestly don't know that uh, we're going to see Antoine Valentino Blake uh, back with the team next year. He's had his moments where he's done some good things. He's had his moments where uh, he's not, done some good things the punt return comes to mind in indianapolis that we still haven't figured out what the heck he was doing but anyway uh there are definitely going to be some significant changes but sims is certainly uh, going to be in the mix to battle for a starting spot i would think next year whether he gets it or not obviously that remains to be seen but even if he's not a starter he could be a guy certainly that gives them a lot of help in, in depth as he continues to grow and get better and then potentially one day uh, become that starter, if not next year. Greg, talking about this um, cornerback group, this game against Kansas City, we saw Blake play 90% of the snaps, which was third most out of all defensive players. Uh, and then Sims and McCain played 76 and 72% of the snaps, respectively. Why is it, you know, that Blake, who seems to be struggling the most, seems the most playing time on the field? Well, yesterday it was really a matter of they didn't have anywhere else to go when Jason McCourty went out of the game. You've already got Sims coming in. They really didn't want to have Sims playing that much uh, at corner. If uh, if Jason doesn't get hurt, I don't think we see as much of LaShawn Sims in that game as we did the injury prompted that move and so then at that point you're kind of stuck in the situation of where do you go after that uh, because there's not a lot of cornerback depth left you had Kalen Reed up but this is a kid that hasn't seen a play in an NFL game and you're sticking him in and basically a playoff game and saying okay you know here you go and I know sometimes you have to do that but uh, that certainly wasn't a time that they wanted to do that so you go with the experience of McCain and and Blake in that situation and, and hope. And uh, let's say this for Valentino Blake. He has played better the last two weeks. I thought he had a good game against Denver. I thought he had a pretty good game yesterday. Uh, he wasn't as bad as he had looked at other times during the season to this point. So, uh, you know, and that may be a credit to Dick LeBeau and some of the things they're doing. They may have made some changes in the coverage and the way they're doing things to try to better disguise those guys and hide them or protect them. And, Whatever they're doing, it's working out, and I think those guys have certainly played a little bit better, but definitely upgrades needed in the future if this team is going to take another step forward from either 8-8 eight and eight or 9-7 and seven or 10-6, and six, whatever they finish this year, and be a serious contender going into the season next year uh, to make the playoffs. Yeah, we, we all definitely see cornerback getting addressed in the offseason. No, nobody will be surprised when they either bring in either a, a fairly high mid-level uh, corner or, you know, start hitting the draft picks early and often. Uh, one of the things I was wondering about, 
the the play calling, you know, kind of what you talked about hiding them. It seemed like leading up to the Chicago game, we had started playing a lot more man coverage than we used to. And, you know, the, the corners that we have, they are definitely not man cover guys. Uh, that's why we were saying earlier that, you know, Sims might be the best man cover guy on the team because it's a bunch of zone corners, guys who are much better when they can react to the ball in the air and use their athleticism as opposed to trying to run with somebody because they don't do a good job of turning their heads around. You know, e- even uh, Dick LeBeau has commented on that. Uh, it looked to me like in the Denver game they switched back to more zone uh, defense. Have you noticed that as well? Uh, is that, like you said, them trying to cover for these guys and stop exposing them on the island? Or is it just, you know, Dick's matchup process as they come into different teams? Well, I think some of it has to do with matchups, but I think, uh, again, and, and you, you said it, they're trying to cover some of it, and they're trying to give you some combination looks where they, they give you maybe a look that the quarterback thinks it's man, uh, you know, for, at the line of scrimmage, okay, I've, or I've got man, and then they fall out of it, or when they go back, they're dropping into, into zone coverages and zone areas and forcing the quarterback then to figure out where they are and some, where are some of the traffic on the inside with the linebackers. You know, at times we see both the Rackpo and Morgan back in coverage in soft zones uh, off the line, seven to ten yards. And those are two big guys when you're trying to throw the football, especially if you're trying to throw it over. And both of them are six three, six four. You know, it makes it a little bit tougher with those guys uh, there. So they're doing some things with this, I think, to disguise some and help those guys out as much as they can, and not maybe put them on an island as much as they would like to in the future once they get upgrades there and if Sims is the guy and and whomever takes over on the other side that they can go and go, okay, we're going to take our best corner, uh, much like you you saw with Darrell Rivas in his day, Aqib Tlaib even now with Denver's a guy that kind of can do that. You can put him on one guy and and trust that he's going to to be able to handle that guy 90% of the time in any given game and then you could do some different things and you go back and look at Pittsburgh and what Dick LeBeau there and you can see that you know zone is not necessarily something that he wants to play a lot of but it's something that he will play at times based on matchups and and it's just what he's got to do right now with this group to kind of I don't want to say nurse but be able to, to get the most out of them by helping them as much as they can schematically. Greg, it seems like every week our next game is our most important game. Um, we've seen a little bit more of Derrick Henry in, in recent weeks. Do you think with these next two games moving forward, we see a little bit more to try to keep DeMarco Murray fresh for the potential playoff games? Oh, absolutely. Uh, let's go back and think about this from the beginning, guys. First, uh, there was some question about DeMarco Murray. Was he the guy that played in Dallas two years ago? or had he hit the running back wall that uh, gets eventually and and catches every running back, and was he more of the 700-yard guy that we saw in Philadelphia? This team really didn't know. They were willing to take a chance, but they hedged their bets and went out and drafted Derrick Henry. So if DeMarco was the 700-yard guy, they had another guy, another piece to the puzzle. Now, DeMarco Murray is much closer to the Dallas DeMarco than he was the Philadelphia DeMarco, and so – they have been more than willing to ride him and use him, and we saw yesterday why, because, you know, he's the guy that made that catch on the uh, play there at the uh, from the 15-yard line down to the one that set up Derek H- Henry's touchdown uh, that would have tied the game had they have kicked the extra point. Uh, 
there. So uh, DeMarco gives them so many different things and so many things he can do, and Derrick Henry is still learning some of those things. He's a phenomenal running back. You put the ball in his hands and say run downhill, he can run downhill with anybody in this league. He's still learning a little bit, still trying to gain the trust, I think, of coaches in some aspects. He's been in more as a blocker. Uh, in pass protection for Marcus. We still haven't seen him catch a lot out of the backfield, though we were really impressed with his hands in training camp. It was far better than what people and the experts said coming out of Alabama where he he wasn't asked to be a guy that caught a lot of screen passes. So you really didn't know if he could do it or not. I think he can do it. It's just a matter that DeMarco has been so good for this team that they're going to use him as much as possible. But, yes, right now at this point in the season, I think we see more of Derek running the football to keep DeMarco fresh because Derek is really fresh. You go back and, and count the number of carries. He's not had that many for the season. And this is a workhorse, strong, big, tough, physical kid. I mean, you just look at him without his pads on him. He is sculpted. You can tell that he's made to take a pounding as a running back. Absolutely. And, you know, this in this Chiefs game, he ran for over six yards of carry. He looked really strong out there in the cold weather. And being an Alabama guy, I wasn't sure if that was going to work out for him. But it, it was definitely his kind of football, his kind of game. Uh, we, we were watching him and just whenever he was out there, like the, the, it was hurting the Chiefs more tackling him. Uh, you know, obviously, DeMarco Murray has the complete skill set you could ever ask for in a running back. But just w- watching... Derek, when he was out there, just hammer those guys. A- after tackling him, the Chiefs players all seem to get up just a little bit slower every time. Well, now let me say this in full disclosure here. I'm a Bama guy, Bama alum. Got some friends in the media down in Tuscaloosa that spent some time with Derek when he was in school down there. Uh, I've had the opportunity to talk with mm-hmm. him here. He is 100% all about football. He is a no-nonsense guy. If you see an interview with him, he doesn't come off great in interviews because it's not his thing. He doesn't want to do it. He just wants to play football. And even though it was cold, and yes, he's an Alabama guy, but remember, he played his high school football in Florida, so he'd never been in anything like that yesterday. But his mindset and, and his just... I want to play football, and this is how I play football. I run downhill, and I run as hard as I can run and hit anything that gets in my way. And if you want to tackle me, you're going to pay the price for it. And that is what you want at this time of year in those conditions. And he was certainly able to give them that. And I think he'll be able to give them that going forward if they go to New England or whomever, if they get into the playoffs that they see. Uh, They're going to see and and have some opportunities to tackle that guy. And I, I obviously haven't talked to any of the Chiefs, but I'm betting some of those guys are going, man, I don't want to tackle that guy too many times when he's running full speed at me and as cold as it was. Absolutely, yeah. When I was walking out of that stadium, the uh, the fans were like, we're going to see you again in the playoffs. I'm like, I bet you guys don't want to see us again in the playoffs. You know, uh, well, if it happens, it may happen. It'll happen in Nashville if they don't. It absolutely division, will. So they, uh... yeah, it, which was awesome for us. We'll, we'll take that. Uh, yeah, and – you know, the idea of having DeMarco Murray and then Derrick Henry still fresh for the playoffs, that, that feels pretty good, too. Uh, it's also going to help out Marcus a lot. Uh, you know, Marcus has been progressing really nicely the second season. He started out a little bit rough. He had he had some uh, mistakes in this game. He, he threw an interception that as soon as it left his hand, I was screaming no because there was just nowhere for him to go for the ball. I thought maybe he should be throwing it out of bounds. Um, 
and the, the 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 fumble everybody kept talking about. He's not wearing gloves. It's going to be cold. Yeah, he's going to fumble the ball, and he did. the The thing is, is he's he's progressed so much and played so well over the last few weeks that even this game it doesn't hurt his image any. He, he's playing so well and he's improved so much. Uh, where do you rank him among the top young quarterbacks at this point? Uh, you know, everybody who's a Titans fan wants to make him number one. But but as an honest evaluation of it, you know, against guys like the Derek Cars of the world, where do you have him at? Is in like your top five? Huh, that's tough because you, you go and look and you you talk about guys. I think he's obviously ahead of uh, anyone in the AFC South, with the exception of Andrew Luck. Luck obviously is the the top quarterback in this division. I would put Marcus number two in the AFC over Bortles, over Osweiler, certainly over Savage. Uh, at this point, who it looks like he's certainly going to be the starter this week for them. We don't know what it'll be uh, in two weeks here. But uh, you look at Dak Prescott and what he's done, it's been impressive. Derek Carr is right up there. He's got the Raiders as a legitimate Super Bowl contender. But when you look at Derek Carr, he's got some pieces around him. You know, he's got a guy on the outside in Amari Cooper that's as good as almost any receiver in this league and can certainly do some things there. He's got some weapons at tight end. He's got Michael Crabtree, who is a very talented and quality receiver. Uh, He's got a pretty decent run game. Marcus, to me, right now, still is a couple of receivers away from this offense being able to maximize what I think it can do and some of the things that we saw this team work on in, in training camp and OTAs uh, when fans weren't around. They've, they've got a lot more stuff that they want to do. They don't have all of the players that can do the things that they want it to do. And along with we talked about the secondary and cornerback being a place they're going to look at, they're certainly going to look at wide receiver, I would think. Maybe not necessarily in the draft, though I think they probably will take one in the draft. But I think they'll look in free agency, too. And, guys, I wouldn't be surprised if if a name or two that were out there that might be available for trades that they might be able to look into going out and getting uh, because they want to get faster on the outside, and that will help Marcus having a true game changer that can stretch the field, take the top off, hit the home run, all those cliches that you hear about, uh, can score from anywhere on the field, much like Tyreek Hill that we saw yesterday. Now, he didn't do it in the passing game, but we saw what that speed can do, and they're looking for a guy that can do similar things to go along with Tajay Sharp and to go along with Rashard Matthews, who are having great years, and then Delaney Walker. And by the way, I've got a tight end in my uh, first mock draft uh, coming in because the Titans are going to have to address that there. Delaney's getting a little older. I think Anthony Fasano will be gone. Obviously, Craig Stevens retired, so that's a position of need to look at too. But they need some more offensive weapons. If I had to put Marcus in the top 10 right now and pick a spot for him, I'd probably put him in five or six uh, in the league as far as the top young quarterbacks in this this league. And that may be uh, taking a little bit away from him because certainly he's done enough to, to warrant inclusion in that and maybe be a little bit higher. But I, I grade pretty tough on the Titans uh, because, you know, you never want to get labeled as being a homer when you're in the medium. Yeah, speaking of homers, myself, uh, I know you're a Bama guy, but you were talking about Marcus getting some weapons. How would you feel about with our Rams pick this year, uh, taking my guy, Mike Williams, at receiver? Clemson? Mike Williams? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 
very talented guy. Uh, I don't know if I would take him in the first round uh, right now because, first off, let, let me say this. I think John Robinson wants to move one of those two round, two first-round picks, and, and the Rams pick would be the choice because right now they don't have a second-round pick. They also don't have a sixth-round pick. That was part of the deal last year in the shuffle when they went uh, from one down and then went back up to get Jack Conklin. So he wants more selections. So they could possibly move that pick to pick up a second rounder, grab a sixth or another third or a fourth, whatever they can get out of it. And if they do that, I'm not sure that he's a guy that's going to go out and take a receiver in the first round, especially when this team has other needs that they can fill uh, with cornerback. Desmond King is a guy that uh, I really like out of Iowa. Uh, I think he is a solid cornerback and do some things. Uh, I like Adoree Jackson, a kid out of USC that can really do some things. He's athletic. He can return kicks and punts as well. Those are two guys that I have in the 14 to 20 range of my uh, not official and, and uneducated draft analysis. So I would say that Mike Williams probably is a long shot to me simply because Robinson coming from the Patriots, you know, they're not a team that goes out and, and spends – high draft picks on wide receivers. So I don't know that Williams would be a guy that would wind up here in the first. Now, Robinson could certainly surprise me there, but if I had to guess it right now, that's kind of where I would think that they're leaning. And I, I don't just don't see that he's going to be a guy that, that they would take. Even if they do keep both those first-round picks, I think they're looking at certain other areas. And I can tell you this, guys, uh, from talking to, to various people, uh, if Miles Garrett is available <laughs> – by some kind of stretch of the imagination when they pick, and I know he won't be, he will be the pick if he's on the board when the Titans get there. I'll just tell you that now. That won't happen. He won't be there, but they absolutely love that guy. That would be beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree with you as far as we need defense first, but I would not be upset if we got Mike Williams. That guy's a monster. I think he would really help us no. out. But Adoree Jackson, I don't I think, think it's a bad pick at all. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree that we do need defense uh, first and first priority but i mean there's so many options that we could do with with this two first round picks there's there's so many different ways we could go well now let me throw this at you guys and this was my first mock that i did uh, and it's on the titan insider dot uh, titan insider site uh, i stuck with the draft as it sits right now two first round picks and no second round pick and did the full seven rounds and i don't have it all in front of you to tell me tell you everything but my first two picks at number six I took Reuben Foster, and not because he's an Alabama guy, but, but I feel like this guy is a true top-five talent. And looking at some mocks, he was still available at number six to me. So I took him to help as an inside linebacker, which he's a pass rusher from there as well. And I took Desmond King in the, at cornerback with the 14th pick. Those were my two guys to come in and help this defense right away. I certainly took offensive guys in other parts of the draft, but those are my, were my two first-rounders right now. I don't know if you guys would like that or not, or fans may think I'm crazy, but uh, certainly I think those two guys could come in and really help uh, boost this defense because, to me, the defense is further away than really the offense is right now. The offense only needs a couple of players, and you can find those uh, you know, guys that can come in and help you, like a Tajay Sharp in a lower round. But to get two true difference makers on defense, to me, was pretty important, and that's kind of where I went that direction. We, we actually talked about the draft just a little bit ago. Uh, I think 
uh, maybe two weeks ago. And that's pretty much what we came to the conclusion of, too, is that inside linebacker and cornerback are the, the two number one priorities for this team. As much as we like Avery Williamson and Wesley Woodyard, we, we've got to get somebody who's more versatile and can uh, make a difference in the pass game, uh, b- both as and can cover people and can blitz the quarterback. And then, obviously, uh, corners in general, there's there's several different corners out there we like. Adoree Jackson's one of our definite favorites. Uh, and King comes up quite a bit, too. So we're definitely right there with you on that draft. Well, now, obviously, it's a little early for drafts. But uh, when I wrote that, I did that a couple of weeks ago, and it was still uh, you know, very questionable that the Titans would get in at the point in time I did that. Uh, they weren't in control of their own destiny knowing, hey, if we win out, we win our final four games, and now they've won two of those with two to go. But if we win out, then we control, we win this division, we go to the playoffs. So, you know, Terry and I, Terry McCormick, who's Titan Insider, uh, started the site and, and, and is the operator of it uh, that I've been helping. You know, we said, hey, let's do a mock. You do a mock. You do all this draft stuff. Go ahead and do it and we'll put it out and get ahead of the game and, and try to get one out there. So I did it, and now, you know, it kind of seems weird that you look back and go, well, I did that, and I, I stick by what I did. But knowing that the Titans now, you know, all bets are off as far as that number 14 spot, that thing could fall to 20 or even lower than that uh, in the draft order, depending on what they do now in the playoffs they get in. Uh, you know, we're still pretty well locked in, I think, at number six with the Rams pick, but uh, certainly 14 could uh, definitely change. Yeah, hopefully 32. <laughs> that would be okay. I, I think that would be – I don't think anybody would complain about that. <laughs> uh, before, before we move off the draft, you talked about Reuben Foster a little bit. Um, him and Zach Cunningham have really been the two big names uh, at inside linebacker. From And you, you talked about how much you like Foster, and I, and I agree, but a lot of people have Cunningham ahead of him. What do you think about Zach Cunningham from what you've seen? He is a great player. I think he would be a guy that uh, if he were available in the second round and I were the Titans, I would jump on him and love to add him in Foster. And I don't take Foster simply because of the Alabama thing. Just looking at the measurables and the numbers and the numbers of production he's put up and the top level of football that he's played. And certainly Zach Cunningham playing in the SEC has played some great competition. But you look across the board and see what Foster has played uh, in his time. Wisconsin, USC, Clemson, Michigan State. This guy has played against the best of the best. He's played against Jack Conklin. Uh, You go back and you look, and you can actually find a couple of times where he and Conklin uh, met up on some things in that uh, semifinal game last year. So this guy has played at the highest level against the best competition, and All the draft scouts that I've talked to, and I've talked to scouts that I know from three other organizations besides the Titans, they all have Reuben Foster as a top five pick uh, on their boards. So I don't know that he would be there at six, but if he were, I certainly think that that would be one you jump on. But uh, that's the difference to me in the two. Uh, And I'm not saying that that Cunningham isn't a first-round pick, but obviously the Titan situation, you can't really take two inside linebackers in the first round. And were he to be there in the second, if you had a second-round pick, I'd certainly take him at that point and have those two and be very happy to have them together. All right, moving on from the draft now, and 
Speaking about some of these older players on our team, Greg, obviously a new leaf has been turning, and there's a lot of guys that are going to be out of jobs pretty soon as we keep uh, you know, improving this team. So with all these younger players stepping up into the roles, what veterans do you see us keeping out of out of the outside of the obvious ones like Murray Walker? Uh, what are some veterans you think stick around on the team? Well, that's a good question. Uh, you know, when you look at the offense, really Delaney Walker is the only. Uh, well, I take that back, Anthony Fasano, but his contract is up this year, and I don't think that he will be uh, brought back with the team. So that's certainly one. Uh, I think Delaney Walker, as long as he wants to play and he has given no indication that he is uh, anywhere in his mind close to being done, so I think he will be back next year. There's not really a lot on offense with veteran players. You go to the defensive side and you look, Wesley Woodyard is a guy that uh, could potentially be gone from the team. Now, he's also a guy that certainly could give you a few snaps here and there, play a decreased role be a veteran leader and stick around if you go out and draft a Reuben Foster or a Cunningham or or whomever else they might bring in uh, to to fill that spot. He might be a a good backup guy. Uh, You look at the outside with Derek Morgan and Brian Arakpo. They're veterans. I think both those guys certainly will be back next year. They've given no indication uh, that they're ready to to hang it up, and I don't think the team uh, wants to get rid of them. So then it goes back to the secondary where you see uh, Denoris Searcy, who right now is in the concussion protocol and has struggled uh, some this season with that. You look at Rashad Johnson and and you look at Jason McCourty. That's really the the grouping of three right there that uh, seem the most uh, likely, and I shouldn't say likely, but the most uh, possibility, I guess, the biggest possibility, that they could be guys that could be gone next year because other than that, this is a pretty young roster. Uh, at most every spot, you, I guess you could call Jarrell Casey a veteran guy, but he's certainly uh, he's not going anywhere. One guy I wanted to, uh, before we move on from this subject, one guy I wanted to bring up is, is Kendall Wright, and I think a lot of people have the feeling that this is Kendall Wright's last season as a Titan. Would you agree with that? Well, yes, and then there's what happened yesterday that kind of, uh, gives me pause, and, and let me explain why I say that. Kendall is a guy that last year, early in the season, when the team started tr- struggling before uh, Ken Wisenhunt was dismissed, he checked out. He was literally just here uh, in body only. He didn't really care. You could tell that he was disinterested, that it was simply what he had to do to get paid, uh, you know, that that was pretty much it. He was just going through the motion. He came into training camp, and we felt like, okay, he, he looks good. He seems like he's reengaged with Malarkey and this staff, and then he suffered the hamstring injury that cost him most of training camp and the preseason, and he struggled with it early in the year, and of late he had seemed disengaged and checked out again. And everybody in the media, pretty much to a man, was – of the opinion, like you said, that, yes, this is it. Kendall's going to be gone. But then yesterday, and I don't know if you guys saw it, there was a picture taken uh, by some of the photographers at the game. The very first player to Mike Malarkey to hug him after the game was Kendall Wright, which kind of makes me think, you know, okay, what's going on here? Because 
certainly uh, early in the game, Kendall was a non-factor. But down the stretch, he and Delaney Walker were the two guys that Marcus went to and leaned on when they needed the scoring drive and then the drive to get in field goal range for the game winner. So that makes me kind of wonder, you know, if maybe Kendall has figured out something or maybe they've come to some kind of understanding or something, and perhaps there could be a role here in the future. Now, if I was put on the spot, I would say he's probably going to be gone. But based on just that and some other things that I've talked to some people about in the last 24 hours, I would not be surprised if perhaps he might have a role with this team, not as prominent as what he was thought to be coming into this season, but there still could be a place for him here. But I'd say probably 90-10 right now in my mind that he's probably gone. Yeah, I think after the Denver game, I heard Coach Malarkey say that, you know, Kendall understood why he was a healthy scratch, and moving forward he had a clean slate. Um, In my opinion with Kendall, I think that, He's always kind of had the attitude that, you know, he, he wants to be on a winning team, and I don't think we've really given that to him. I, I think maybe with the present team we have going forward, maybe that's the the main thing that might keep him around. That's true, and let me say this for Kendall, because uh, in the past, and I said this two weeks ago uh, on Sunday following the Denver game, in the past this team has not had a whole lot of accountability. Uh, go back to the Taylor Lewan ejection. In the past, that ejection to an offensive lineman or any player, that player would have been gone from the locker room. They would have showered, changed, and left and been long gone before the end of the game or at least before the media got in there. Now we saw Taylor after the ejection in the Green Bay game. He was in there standing up in front of the media saying, hey, you know, this is what happened. I screwed up, blah, blah, whatever he said. After the Denver game, Kendall was in the locker room. I was the first person to get to Kendall Wright and Harry Douglas, as a matter of fact, both whose lockers are right uh, beside each other in the in the locker room. And Kendall stood up and talked and said, I missed the meeting. It's my fault. Coach told me on Saturday I was going to be a healthy scratch. I knew it. You know, there was no surprise here. I think that based on that, and as you said, finally this team having at least – not a losing season at this point. If it ended today, they'd have eight wins. They'd be eight and eight at worst. So Kendall can see that this team is is on the rise and perhaps is, is buying back into things after that. And, again, we'll see. I'd still go 90-10, but uh, I, I think that perhaps, as I said, there could be a role for him here because he certainly has some talent and can bring some things to the team. He's just got to be engaged with this thing, and he's really a uh, funny, lighthearted, kind of carefree character uh, in the locker room, and, uh, you know, he's just got to be engaged, and and perhaps now this will re-engage him, especially if this team can win out the next two games and get into the playoffs and give him a taste of something he hasn't had in his NFL career to this point. It's kind of a question of is the price going to be right, you know, for Kendall, I think is the deciding factor. Uh, like you said, I think he wants to stay at this point if this is going to be a winning team, but will he pay for what they're willing to give him versus what they're going to bring in? Uh, just well, real quick, I don't think there's going to be a huge market for him based on the numbers that he's put up. Absolutely. No, I don't think so either. Uh, just, you know, it depends on what he's expecting and what his agents, you know, blowing in his ear probably. Right. Uh, uh, just real quick, uh, who, who do you take in a fight? Harry Douglas or uh, Akeem Tlaib? You know, I don't know. I, I don't know any. I don't know enough about Akeem Tlaib to say 
Harry doesn't exactly strike me as a fighter. Don't get me wrong. I don't think he's a cupcake, and, you know, I wouldn't go up and, you know, try to start a fight with him. He's a professional athlete, but he's a soft-spoken, kind of laid-back, really nice guy and just doesn't strike me as the guy that's that's a huge fighter. Tlaib runs his mouth, obviously, uh, you know, talks talks a good game. I don't know what he could do, so – uh, you know, I'll just say toss up on that because I don't know enough about Tlaib to to rank him. But I can say this: I think that probably if they met each other in their agent's uh, office in Atlanta, uh, Mr. France's office, I don't think there would be any fight. I think that's more bluster than it is actual substance on his part. Yeah, millionaires usually don't run around getting in fights with each other outside of the field. <laughs> he's, he's he's good for an eye gouge and a low blow. That's probably about it. <laughs> That may be true too on the on the outside, but again, you know, like I said, I don't just don't know enough about the guy other than you know what we see from the the dirty things and the and the talk and things that he does. He's a good football player. I'll give him that. That he is. Um, now I think this is pretty much an internet rumor, and I'm not taking it too seriously. But have you heard any possible reports on the acquisition of Richard Sherman? No, that is the first I've heard of that. Okay. He, I, apparently he's upset with Pete Carroll's play calling, and, and they made a little stink of it last week, but I think it's internet smoke. I didn't really think anything of it. Well, I'll say this. I think that certainly if he were available and the price were right, that John Robinson probably wouldn't hesitate to add a Richard Sherman to this roster. But I have not heard anything, and you know, I, that's, I think that's a little bit far-fetched. Uh, to me, at this point in time, I think things would probably have to be a lot worse uh, than that before Sherman would would leave Seattle at this point, just in in my estimation. And I obviously don't know the guy. Yeah, it's it's definitely uh you know internet rumor, chat board smoke kind of stuff uh, going on there more than anything else. Uh, you know, let's talk a little bit about the the rookie class. Uh, we, we've had a chance to see, watch these young men play uh, coming out of the draft and into the season. What rookie were you most excited about, and is he still the rookie that impresses you the most at this point of the season? So it's kind of a, you know, who are you most looking forward to? Has that player impressed you, or is it a different rookie that's kind of shined to you at this point? Uh, well, it was two rookies, actually, and one up, one down. Uh, both second-rounders, Kevin Dodd and, and Derrick Henry. Uh, Henry has underperformed in the fact that he has not had as many opportunities, but he certainly – when he's been in the game, he's made the most of his opportunities, as we saw on Sunday. So uh, I would like to have seen more of him early on in the season. I think he could have helped this team even more uh, in a few games earlier. Uh, he's doing it now, so he's kind of where uh, I thought Kevin Dodd, obviously nobody could predict that he was going to you know, break his foot or, or the injury that he suffered there and have to go through that surgery and then miss time and then have to deal with it and go back and have a second surgery and be out. Uh, so it's it's not that he has underperformed from the standpoint of on the field performance, uh, though he didn't do a lot, but it was obviously uh, because of the injury that he uh, suffered and the surgery and then having to go back and have the second one that really cost him. So disappointed in that for him and, and thinking that there's some good things for him hopefully in the future. And one guy, and it was the other second rounder too, Austin Johnson, I thought he had a pretty good game yesterday against Kansas City. He'd been a guy that hadn't seen a lot of playing time. He'd been struggling to even be up. He'd been inactive several games. 
uh, and he's starting to come on. So when we look back at this rookie draft class in the end, I think they're probably going to get high marks in three or four years as a collective group and could even be pushed higher uh, with Kevin Dodd if he uh, comes back next season and, and can get back into the shape and the form of the player that they thought he was going to be when they drafted him. Austin Johnson was the player I was most looking forward to. Uh, I was really excited when they drafted him, and we just didn't get much out of him for most of the season. He finally looks like he's starting to come on, and I didn't know if it was just a learning process or having to you know, prove it to the coaches that he really wanted to be on the field. But I'm, I'm happy to see him out there playing and playing fairly well now. Well, part of it is a learning process, and part of it is a physical process, too, because even though these guys come in in college weight rooms and they're big, strong guys, a lot of times, they're still not prepared for that jump. You know, it's the same jump as going from high school to college. And sometimes it takes a freshman a little while uh, to get acclimated, especially if you're playing linebacker in the line, uh, you know, positions where you, you need a lot of strength because you're really battling and fighting more so than as a receiver, uh, you know, when you're on the outside. And it's the same coming from college to the NFL. He's He's gotten some of that in the weight room. He'll continue to get that. Uh, get even stronger and, and I think there's a there's a bright upside for Austin Johnson certainly it just took him a little bit uh, to get there and some people got down on him early because he was a second round pick and wasn't really producing um I of course I know that you've heard of the news of Brock Osweiler what do you think of the binging of Brock and and bringing Savage up and they of course they've already announced that Savage is going to start uh, on Saturday. So what are your thoughts on this? Well, you know, Brock Osweiler is the perfect case of you see the bright, new, shiny car, and you don't have a bright, new, shiny car, and you go out and you pay a lot of money for it, and then you find out it, uh, you know, it wasn't as bright and shiny as perhaps it uh, seemed on the outside when you initially started, and I think that's kind of the case with him. He had been in Denver, he'd been in the league for several years, but he hadn't played a lot of football until last year when Peyton Manning got hurt. And you look at the team around him that he had last year, and you think, wow, you know, this guy played really good. Oh, yeah, you can play really good. You know, you you and I, any of us three or four guys could go in and, and play pretty decent behind a Denver team that was as good as that one was with the defense they had last year and not be bad. And I think that's kind of the case with Osweiler. He was helped by what he had around him and now he gets to Houston and he doesn't necessarily have as much around him and we're seeing him struggle to be the quarterback that they thought he was going to be when they spent all those big bucks for him and now Tom Savage is going to get a chance to see what he can do now don't sit here and I'm not going to sit here and say that Osweiler's career is through that he can't come back and develop but I just think they went out and overpaid for a guy because of what he did in a few games last year with an outstanding football team around him as opposed to, uh, you know, being a guy with a team like Marcus or like Derek Carr that came up with those teams and got better with those teams and grew with those teams. Osweiler's going through some growing pains with this new team, and it remains to be seen uh, if these guys can figure it out. You know, we've been seeing this in the league forever. Uh, uh the backup quarterback comes in. He has a good game. The the young quarterback you know plays up really well the preseason, but never has a chance to really do anything uh, later on. You you see this over and over again of teams paying big money and taking chances and tying their franchises off to guys who haven't proved it, and that you know they didn't draft, they didn't come up through their system. Uh, so 
in you know talking about John Robinson and the Patriots that kind of thing, uh, a player like Jimmy Garoppolo, you know, he had a really good start. Is he going to be a hot commodity this coming off season? I certainly think so. But if I'm Jimmy Garoppolo, I think I would maybe take a little bit less money to stick around in New England and sit on the bench and and win Super Bowls perhaps or at least uh, win 10 games a season and then be able to step in and take over for Tom Brady who can't play forever even though he may think he can and you know he may play another four or five six years who knows but uh, it's going to come to an end at some point and you know unless Garoppolo really feels like he's going to play another four or five six years and he's not going to have an opportunity then I would stay put. But I think he's certainly going to be a hot commodity because there's so many teams that need a quarterback desperately and would look to that guy and say, okay, we can get this guy. We've seen what he can do. But, again, he kind of is in the same situation as I mentioned a while ago with Osweiler. He's played a little bit of football with a very good football team and looked really good doing it. Do you really know what you're getting when you go out and buy that guy? And, Greg, the other big piece of news within our conference, of course, is the firing of of Gus Bradley. This is not really shocking after the performance that he has had throughout his um, tenure in Jacksonville. Uh, What did you think about this move, and and what do you think that they're looking for in their future? Is there any guys that really stick out to you as maybe being Jacksonville's next head coach? Well, I can tell you two names that have already surfaced, one that uh, popped up a couple of weeks ago uh, as a potential guy there and uh, one that popped up to me last night, and I'll tell you who told me the second one. First one was Tom Coughlin. Uh, You know, he was the Jacksonville head coach for many years. Things didn't work out. He went to New York. He won a couple of Super Bowls. He's a guy that I think that they might have some interest in. But uh, my podcast partner, Brad Hopkins, told me last night, Don't sleep on the potential that Jeff Fisher could be a candidate in Jacksonville, and wouldn't that be ironic that uh, (laughs) Jeff, after some of the things he said back in the 1999 season, uh, you know, when the Titans and the Jags were probably the two best teams uh, in the – or certainly the two best teams in the AFC and might have been the two best teams in football, even though the Rams won the Super Bowl, I still uh, hold a grudge on that one and think that uh, if the Titans play football in the first half and don't – sleepwalk through it that they probably win that Super Bowl but that's a story and a, and a discussion for another time but uh, yeah I think Jeff uh, could certainly and Brad didn't divulge where he got that information from but uh, he said don't sleep on it and certainly he's a guy that knows Jeff Fisher very well. Jeff has said he wants to come back and you know coach still and you know probably end up setting that uh, all-time loss record the the idea of Jeff Fisher coming back and playing or, I mean, in coaching in the AFC South, it, does it really seem like a real possibility? Uh, it's hard to gauge. Obviously, uh, Jeff may be interested in it more so than maybe the Jaguars are interested in him. Because if you're, if I'm Jacksonville and, and Shad Khan, and uh, I don't know what the GM situation is going to be down there, there could be uh, some changes in the front office. But I got to look at it, and you touched on it, that all-time loss record right now. He's currently tied with Dan Reeves for the most career losses as a head coach. And you look and say, you know, it's been five years since this guy had a winning team. You know, not just made the playoffs, but had a winning team. And then you go back and you look, and outside of 1999, 
he really never, you know, he had a couple years in there where he'd win 10, 11, 12. He had the 13-3 and three year uh, when they lost to Baltimore in the playoffs here, the Titans, that is. But, you know, he's a 500 coach for his career, and he's not really done enough to me if I were an owner to make me want to go out and bring him in to replace a coach that has struggled the way Gus Bradley has with the franchise that struggled the way this one has and say, okay, this is going to be my guy that I feel like can win a Super Bowl. You know, uh, that would be my uh, take on that. But you just never know what these owners are going to do. You know, you, you, you see some of the moves that are made, and you just scratch your head and go on because it, it just makes no sense. And then a lot of times they don't work out and, you know, teams are in this situation like Jacksonville where they're firing a coach and starting over again. Yeah, Greg, with the franchise being so close to a playoff berth for the first time in years, how much do you how much do you think this will affect the fan base and ticket sales moving forward? And also, is it safe to say that the team will not be sold? <laughs> well, <laughs> You know, I don't think that the team is going to be sold. Now, I will say this, and I have this on good authority from a very well-placed source in the NFL, okay, a person that works in the NFL office in New York, uh, that uh, there were some discussions about the team uh, changing hands. Now, how how substantive they were, uh, I can't speculate on. But I do know that those discussions were had between Titans ownership and a potential buyer. Uh, that did take place, but I don't think it ever got to the point where there was an actual hard offer of, okay, we'll give you this. Are you willing to take it made? There was some talk early on. Right now, I would say, no, there's zero chance. Uh, Amy Adams Strunk has embedded herself with this team. She's there every week. She was in the locker room yesterday. After the game, she's at every home game. She's bought a house here in Nashville. She has uh, spent a lot of money. I don't know if you guys saw the pictures of the renovation of the Titans locker room and what they did to that place. Uh, They have done a lot of things to bring up the standard of this team and to make it uh, an NFL franchise that can compete for free agents and compete on every level, not just uh, with the money and writing a check to these guys, but having the facilities and things that they're doing. So I don't think that the team is up for sale uh, in any way at this time. Now, and I, there was, I think there was another part. Of the, I'm sorry, there was another part to the question, and I forgot what it was when I got off on that one. I don't think we remember either. <laughs> uh, oh, the, how excited <laughs> are you to see a, uh, a game in Nashville uh, just as oh. a possibility of having a home playoff game? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and the crowd. You asked about the crowd. I think the ticket sales next year, we will see them go up. I think we will see a decrease in the number of opposing teams, fans, jerseys. We saw a lot of Denver Broncos fans in the game here two weeks ago. Now, we attribute that, and this is just a thought. Obviously, we have no way of proving it, but this team wasn't expected to be very good when season tickets went on sale. And a lot of opposing fans know that and go, okay, you know, if you live in Memphis or if you live in Kentucky or if you live in Missouri and you're a Broncos fan and it's not but a three or four hour drive you say hey we can go see the Broncos in Nashville because we know we can get tickets because the Titans aren't very good so these people bought up these tickets when they went on sale now that the team is good and playing better I think we see those ticket sales for Titans games increase and it will be Titans fans there will be less of these 
opposing fans next season uh, in this uh, in this stadium. We don't know what we'll see on uh, Sunday from the Texans, or in two weeks, I should say, from the Texans when they get here as far as their fans. But the empty seats that I think that uh, we have been seeing, I think we'll see those full. I think people will go out on the secondary market and try to find some tickets to get into that game, especially if it's a winner-take-all for the division. And, guys, there's a very good chance that that game could be the Sunday flex game and move from a midday kickoff to the Sunday night game on NBC. And if that happens, I would think that people would really want to be a part of the return of the Titans, if you will, uh, to getting in the playoffs. And I think you'll see people come and buy up those tickets to get into the stadium and see that. And I think we might just see our first full house uh, of the season in quite a while in that game if it does play out that way uh, on Sunday night. It would definitely be nice to see. Uh, at the Chiefs game, the uh, the season ticket holders behind me were complaining that the person who has those seats sells them every week. Uh, I, I bought them back in the summer. So, you know, I don't think we'll see as much of that going forward with the Titans winning. People want to actually be at the game, like you said. Uh, one of the things you mentioned uh, with Amy, she came up and talked to us at the game. A bunch of us Titan fans were down there by the field during uh, practice and warm up, and you know she seems like she's really invested in the teams. Like she's really enjoying being part of this team because we are playing so well, and the changes they made this off season are paying off just in absolute spades. And like you said, it, the, the team looks like somewhere other you know, free agents will want to come and play for. Whereas last year, it was one of those you know dark holes in the NFL. Absolutely. And let me say this, uh, not to dwell on the question you asked about the sale, but remember, this is a ownership group that is segmented. Uh, she and her sister, uh, Susie Smith, who was the, is the wife of Tommy Smith, who took over uh, as the managing partner uh, for the Titans after Bud Adams' passing, uh, they have 33% of the team. Amy has 33% of the team. And then grandson Kenneth uh, Adams has uh, 11% of the team. His mother and sister each have 11, so he controls 33%. He is lives in Nashville, is at the facility every day, uh, works with the team. You probably saw him on the sideline yesterday somewhere near Amy uh, when all that was going on. You may not have known who he was, but he, I'm pretty sure he was there. And uh, so it was a fragmented ownership group, and Tommy Smith really didn't know anything about football, didn't really care to be part of it. He was simply doing it at the family's request. And now Amy, who has a passion for the league and wanting to carry on her father's legacy and wanting to uh, get a Super Bowl title for the franchise that he loved that he was never able to do, and we're seeing that uh, being that kind of effort and that kind of uh, want to from her being put into this thing, and I think that's a big difference uh, with this team right now. All right, Greg, uh, that's all we have. Thanks for having you on a lot, and we understand that you're on the Locked On podcast and you're writing for uh, Titan Insider. How about you tell everybody uh, where they have to go to find uh, the podcast and your writing? Well, you can go on the Audio Boom Network, or you can just simply uh, type into your search engine, Locked on Titans, and it's a daily podcast. 
that I do with Terry McCormick of Titan Insider and former Titans All-Pro left tackle Brad Hopkins. The three of us do the show daily. Uh, it's a weekday show. And then you can find me on Titan Insider. It's T-I-T-A-N-I-N-S-I-D-E-R. Uh, myself and Terry McCormick who cover the team uh, right for that site. And, uh, of course, uh, obviously on social media, at Twitter, uh, we try to do a lot of stuff there. And, uh, guys, I so much appreciate you having me on. It's always a pleasure to join you and uh, be able to talk about the Titans, and I'm glad you guys are enjoying it. And it's nice to be, uh, once again, covering a team that uh, is winning some games. We'll have to wait and see what ultimately comes out of it. But uh, uh, it's been a fun year so far. Definitely, definitely. And and we'll be in touch because, you know, this is probably the bright spot of, of each of our days. We love having you on, so definitely want to get you back as soon as possible. Well, anytime, just let me know, and if I'm available, I'm more than happy to do it. Absolutely. We really appreciate the generosity with your time. I mean, you've given a lot of time to us, and we, we love to have the chance to just to pick your brain and uh, see, see what's really happening with our team. Well, I don't know if you can pick my brain. There's not a lot up there, but <laughs> I'll definitely share. I'll share what I can with you. There's an awful lot going on over there. <laughs> this is true. Thanks a lot for coming on, Greg. It's always a pleasure. You're welcome again. Thanks for having me, guys. Have a great night. Thanks, you sir. too. All right, that and was we're up. <laughs> All right, that was Greg Arias on with us. Again, thanks to him for coming on. Always a pleasure to have him bring his insight uh into the show. Um Our poll question this week is going to be um which Titans rookie has impressed you the most over this first year. So that's going to be the poll question. You'll find it up there at twotoneuncensored.podbean.com where you can also find the show. And you also, on the site, can find the Know Your Enemy articles that Glenn does each and every week where he gets it, Sorry, where he gives you an in-depth look into the team we're going to play the following week. So this week you'll see... One all about the Jacksonville Jaguars and getting us ready for that matchup within the division. Um, You can also find the show on the Podbean app, iTunes, and anywhere you can find iTunes. um, And on the Podcast Addict app, uh, which is on every non-Apple device. Um, Be sure to look out... Wait, what was the fucking... Fire! (laughs) But thanks... (laughs) Thanks again to Greg for coming on to the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. That's all we have. Let's beat the Jaguars and tighten up. Tighten up. Thanks for listening to the Two-Tone Uncensored podcast. You can listen to the show at twotoneuncensored.podbean.com or by downloading the Podbean app on your mobile device. Be sure to follow the show on Twitter at Two Tone Uncensored and like us on Facebook.